right, guys, it's time for another episode of Consistent Calvinism. Um, in this episode, we're going to go back again to latent, responding to latent flowers, Soteriology 101. This particular episode I'm going to be responding to is titled Calvinism's Burden of Proof. And I thought the episode had just come out because it just hit the podcast feed for Soteriology 101, but I guess sometimes they post those way, way later. This episode actually came out about four months ago. I found that out searching the YouTube for the actual video so that I could download the audio so that I could review it. Um, it's about, you know, I'm not sure how I missed it, but I'm actually kind of glad I missed it because this entire episode, as you're going to see, is basically a culmination of all the things that we've built up so far, if you've been following this podcast. Um, again, we started episode one, why it's impossible for God to give you free will in the first place. Num- episode two was on the foreknowledge of God, why God can only know what he determines as the divine author of all creation. God cannot know things he has nothing to do with. Those things cannot even exist in the first place. Um, episode three was on human responsibility, very important topic as well. And later on, we did another episode on fatalism. You know, if God has determined all things, what's the mindset we're supposed to have in light of that? And the last episode was on whether or not Calvinism was inconsistent. We talked a lot about, uh, you know, God in the transcendent position and how we understand his idea, the idea of God causing things, um, metaphysically and ultimately as the sustainer versus God interacting in time and quote-unquote causing things in time. There's a difference there, covered all that stuff, and so if you follow it all the way through, you're going to see how this is all going to come together, because uh, this episode's about an hour and a half long, and I don't even know how I can break it apart, really. There's not much to skip. I mean, in a lot of other episodes, I can break it down and sort of skip parts that aren't really relevant, um, but this is all good stuff. Lots of good stuff here to respond to, and for that reason, this is going to be a long episode. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I think you guys have sort of come to expect that on some of these types of things, but we're just going to go from start to finish um, and skip very few things because there's just a lot of stuff to to respond to. So let's get started here. Um, The clip that we're going to play here really gets into this, what these called these assumptions, which we're going to talk about the intuitive beliefs, the beliefs we have intuitively about the nature of reality. And I'll I'll give one example that I believe you've used before in debates with atheists. the, the intuitive belief that you exist. So, for example, Braxton, if I were to walk up to you and say, uh, you, you believe that you exist, you believe that you're a real person that actually is a sentient being, um, but you don't. This is more like the matrix world. You're just more of a figment of your own imagination. Um, you really don't exist. Then it would seem to me in that, that statement that the burden of proof would be on me to demonstrate how your intuitive belief, your assumption that you exist, isn't true. Is that a fair way of putting it? Now, before Braxton uh, Hunter responds here, I just want to say that, you know, what he's basically getting at here is, well, we we could just start with our intuitions and just basically assume that they're true until we're shown otherwise, right? The burden of proof is on the people coming against my intuitions. Um, and, And I just find this to be a very weak way of looking at things. I mean, sure, we all have intuitions, right? I mean, people... People make assumptions and have intu- intuitive thoughts all the time, but that that doesn't mean that they're true, right? Uh, and the only way that you can know that they're true is if you test them, right? Especially when you come across somebody who disagrees with your intuitions, right? Intuitions are based upon what we know, what we feel, and what we experience. And my primary point here would be that intuitions can most certainly change based upon what you know, right? And what you experience, right? Our intuitions change throughout our lives as we learn and experience and, and, and experience different things and so on and so forth. So the fact that most people start out, quote unquote, start out with the intuition that we have free will is not in any way an argument for free will, right? That's, I, I think even they would admit that. It's just, it's not an argument for it at all. 
Um, I think all they're trying to say here is that the burden of proof is on the person coming against the intuition. Um, but to say that, well, we all start out that way, that that's supposed to have some sort of weight to it, is just basically an argument from the majority, like the, the majority opinion. Um, but one of the examples I think of right off the top of my head um, is historically the idea of people believing that the earth was flat, right? I mean, can you really blame them? With, what, with the limited information that they had and what they experienced, their limited travel and what they, they look around, they see everything looks flat. Can you really blame people for believing that the earth was flat? I can't, right? We look at it now and laugh about it, but that's because we have more information, right? Once the information is introduced and it's proven that the earth is not flat, then all those intuitions, which everybody would have had at those times in history, right? Those intuitions are exposed as being false, blatantly false, right? And, and, and in fact, we would jokingly say that anyone who continues to cling to those intuitions in light of that information is viewed as a bit of a, of a lunatic, right? And, you know, so with, with all due respect, I think the same thing holds true for free will, right? In my opinion, yeah, with limited information, uh, without the Bible, or I would even argue without scientific demonstration of determinism, cause and effect, without that information being introduced, I can fully understand why most people throughout history have believed in the idea of free will, right? But as Christians, we have this thing called the Bible, which we consider to be extra divine revelation from God, the creator, right? So as Christians... That should be what determines our worldview, not our intuitions. So we shouldn't be starting with our intuitions, assuming they're right, and then when we read this thing called the Bible, understanding them through that lens. We should understand that the Bible comes first, and if they shatter, if they shatter our intuitive lenses, then so be it, right? So I would argue that the Bible, as a Calvinist, I would argue the Bible demonstrates very clearly that man does not have free will, right? It, man is not autonomous from God or free from God in any way, in any sense, or at any time, and therefore, our intuitions as Christians should be adapted to what the Bible says. And John Piper, they're going to review a clip by John Piper here. He himself says it, right? He says what most Calvinists I have ever known say. And that is that, yeah, we all thought we had free will because it feels like what we have, right? We look around, we live our lives, it's what we experience. It just feels to be this thing. But that is not an argument for it, right? And as Calvinists, we would most certainly say that I've blatantly said in episode one that I think free will is an illusion, Okay, because uh, you're going based upon limited information. I compared free will to literal illusions, right? You see a magic trick done. You don't know how it's done. It looked like magic. There, there have been people who have lived and died thinking that magic was a real thing because of what they saw and what they experienced. Their intuition told them that they were seeing magic. And yet, when you see how a magic trick's done, right, then you know that it wasn't magic. There is a perfectly logical, reality-based explanation for what was occurring. And so your intuitions are going to adapt to that, right? Uh, I myself, being someone who has worked in the gambling industry, the casino industry, um, I have been surrounded by people who intuitively believed in things like luck, right? All sorts, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe the things that people believed, let me put it that way, about luck. Because they go into a casino, and as far as they can tell, everything is random around them. They're not giving much thought to it. It's what they're experiencing. It seems random. So they lazily slap this label of luck on it, and just call it a day, right? And yet, if you study the issues out, you know that there is no such thing as luck, right? Everything has a cause. Every effect has a cause. Everything is happening for a reason, right? So when that information is introduced, you need to adapt your intuitions to that information. So John Piper, myself, a lot of Calvinists would admit, yes, we thought we had free will, but the Bible forced us to abandon that belief. Now, Leighton just mentioned how we, we intuit. The first example he gives is that we intuitively know that we exist, 
right? And I, I would agree. I think that's an that, I think that's an intuition that every person who has ever existed has has thought has believed that they existed. But how do we as Christians know that that is a true belief, right? Again, talking as Christians here. How do we know that we're justified in our belief that we exist? And that's where the extra information comes in. The Bible tells us that God created us, that God gave us our existence, right? And the Bible goes even farther than that because it doesn't, it doesn't just merely tell us that we exist. It tells us, it explains to us how and why we exist as well. So I would argue that our belief, if you even if you want to call it an intuition, happens to be a true one, yes. And we know it's true because we can justify it. But when it comes to free will, they're pulling a bit of a sleight of hand here because the first example is our intuition that we exist, which as Christians is biblically justifiable. But I would argue that you'll never hear them put forth a biblical justification of their intuition of free will. And that's because the Bible never says that that, it, that we have it. Never says God gave it to you. Never says that you could have it. The Bible nowhere says that you can in any way be free or autonomous from the God who created you and sustained you. Right? The, the Bible explicitly rejects this possibility in places like Hebrews 1.3, God uphold your existence at all times, Colossians 1.17, in, in God all things consist, Acts 17.28, in God you live and move and have your being. Freedom from God is impossible, right? Not because of an intuition we have, we know it's impossible because of what the Bible says. If every particle of your existence relies upon the sustaining power of God at all moments, then by definition, the very definition of your existence is a finite being reliant upon God, freedom from God is impossible. So you see how yeah, I can start with an intuition that I have free will, that I'm free from God, but when I go to the Bible and I find out that I'm not, I have a choice to make. Do I abandon my false intuition and adapt it to what the Bible says, or do I try to hold on to that intuition and basically interpret it through my uh, lens, which I'm refusing to let go of? So I just want to point out how they start with an example of intuition being, we know we exist, and then they try to compare that to intuitively knowing that we have free will. But the problem is, you can prove your intuition that we exist from the Bible, but I would argue that the Bible never puts forth the idea of autonomous free will to support your intuition that we have such a thing, okay? Free will is always an assumption that is brought to the Bible. It is not a foundational teaching of the Bible. I, as a Calvinist, strive to build my worldview upon the foundations the Bible puts forth. I start with God being the creator and the sustainer. Uh, I start with this foundational truth, that God's power upholds every particle of my existence at all moments, and then I build everything else on that. So when I start building stuff on top of that, and it happens to shatter my intuitions along the way, intuitions like free will, well, so be it, right? So be it. But I also want to ask, you know, biblically speaking, as fallen sinners, is there, there's obviously such a thing as false intuition, right? So is it possible that the universal, let's just pretend everybody believes, starts off believing we have free will. Let's just pretend I, I grant that. Um, is it possible that that intuit, intuitive belief is a result of the fall? Is it possible that um, sin is, is resulting in us having that intuition? I think biblically speaking, that's an argument can be made for that. And so once again, how would you know whether or not your intuition is true or false? You have to go to the Bible, right? It's the only way to know. Yeah, I think so. I mean, typically what we say about uh, the burden of proof is, as you know, is the one making the claim is the one who holds the burden of proof. So if you're making a claim, uh, so you could frame it up such that if you're making, if I'm making a claim that I'm free in the libertarian sense, and you're making a claim that determinism is true, well, then in, in that case, we're both making a claim. And that's an important point, right? At least he recognizes that we're both making a claim here, and that's that's why we're debating. But um, if 
but but it really does seem like, and I, I know that I have Calvinist friends who argue against this, but I think it really is does seem intuitive to us that we have libertarian freedom. And of course, in the clip you're going to play, not to not to spoil the lead, but um, uh, Piper admits that very thing that he, that it was intuitive to him that he had libertarian freedom. So I think I think we have this intuition that people have libertarian freedom, that we have libertarian freedom. So in that sense, I think the burden of proof is pretty strongly on the side of the person who says all your intuitions are wrong about that, and whatever you ended up doing, you really couldn't have done otherwise. And even if I grant that, yeah, we all start off believing that sort of thing, um, how is that in any way an argument for it? I mean, just stop and think about how dangerous that particular view is, right? I think a lot of people, a lot of people start off believing all sorts of false things, right? About, let's just talk about basic morality. A lot of people intuitively think that they're doing things that are right when in fact they're doing things that are wrong, right? And what's the only way to demonstrate objectively that they're wrong you got to point at god and what he's the commands he's given us right so it's just this i don't understand how this is in their minds an an, an argument that well we just all you know everybody intuitively believes that we have free will therefore therefore what right therefore it's true i don't know if they're actually saying that but it sounds like what they're saying right but i just want to go back and, and point out that i'm i'm we're both making claims right i make claims and i defend them right i, I justify them so when you say we have free will, I don't just say, well, we don't have it, and then just call it a day. I explain how and why it is that you can't even have free will to begin with, right? And so we really got to get moving on here, but I just I want to go back to this basic question. How can you, as a free will proponent, you believe you have free will. When you make choices, you're free from God. How can you square that with the Bible's foundational teaching that you're never free from God for a single moment? God upholds your existence at all moments. Right? How then can you be free from him? That's that's my my, my simple question. And just to be clear, um, like we said before, um, there sometimes Calvinists have the same vocabulary, different dictionary defining of terms. When when John Piper specifically talks about libertarian free will, he really doesn't use those terms very often. Um, he's, he ca he calls it ulti ultimate self determination is what he calls libertarian free will. And uh, for example, in this article that um, uh, before he goes on, I, I want to point out something I found very interesting. Uh, just in my studies and my observations of these particular things, the Calvinists are most of the time the ones who ever actually define free will in the first place. And it's it's really funny, given the fact that here they are talking about intuitions, when they throw free will, the term free will, around so often, and they don't feel like they need to define it because they just assume everybody intuitively knows what they mean. Right? They're actually, in most of their arguments, the free will proponents are playing off of the the assumption of the people they're talking to of free will, and they, they feel that they don't really even need to define it to begin with. Now, the reason Calvinists go out of their way to define free will, as I have done extensively in all my episodes, freedom from God, that's the only reference point that matters. Um, we, we define free will clearly from the start um, because that is how we can then go about attacking it and dismantling it and disproving it, right? You have to have your definitions right in order to, to go down that road that I had pulled up. This is what John Piper says. And I'm just, the reason I'm doing this is to give you some, uh, kind of some information before we listen to John Piper talk so you know where he's coming from. Uh, he says this, God is the only being who is ultimately self-determining. So he seems to be actually be arguing here that, that God does have libertarian free will, which is something that some Calvinists aren't willing to admit. And, you know, I, um, in episode one, I put forth very clearly that I, as a consistent Calvinist, believe that God is the only one with true free will. I put forth the, the 
the point that before creation exists, only God exists, nothing outside of God determined him or moved him to create. He did It was a self-determined action on God's part. But I also pointed out in episode one that that is only possible of God. True self-determination is only possible of an eternal being. It's only possible of a being who is self-sustained, self-caused, self-powered, and is not moved or determined by things that are external to himself and is not reliant upon anything other than himself, right? Right. We rely on God's power. Um, God doesn't rely on any power other than his own. So just keep that in mind as he continues on here. Because if you can show that free will, libertarian free will exists, then it's not irrational to, to, to make the claim that he could create creatures with some level of libertarian free will. Is that correct? Now, that is absolutely irrational. Um, and I'm going to let Braxton speak first because he's going to double down on that, and then I'm just going to destroy it. Yeah, I'm glad that you bring that up, because this is one of the ways, this also comes up in my discussions with atheists, and that and it was really a blessing when I realized this, and I'm not the first to say it, um, but uh, if it, it, God, as the creator of the universe, is the creator of time, space, and physical matter, and so if, you're, if, if God, if sans the physical universe, without the physical universe, God exists spacelessly and timelessly, and without material things, then whatever happens when God creates, it has to be a libertarianly free choice because there's nothing there's nothing determining God if there's no physical universe or time for determination to work on him. There's nothing determining God to create. And, and he's absolutely right. I just, just laid that out. He's, he's affirming it and agreeing with it. Very important. There's no randomness happening in a spaceless time. Mm-hmm. Day. And so for that reason, God's choice to create the universe must be libertarianly free, at least in the sense that nothing external to God is determining what God does. Absolutely correct. And uh, if Calvinists want to call that compatibilism, it's not. We could go into that, but it's not compatibilism. Yeah, I would not call it compatibilism. The bottom line is, I'm happy to defend with any Calvinist the claim that God must have libertarian freedom. And so if there's a Calvinist out there who says, well, libertarian freedom in principle isn't even possible, well, then you're going to have problems with God's creation of the universe. And... Right, he's right. So if there's Calvinists out there saying that just libertarian free will is not possible at all, right, then then they're wrong. And I agree with Braxton on that, because God has it, right? God has libertarian free will. God is autonomous um, and truly self-determined. But that is God, as he just laid out in his, in his eternal existence, his eternal state, that is precisely why it is possible, Right. So I just want to point out, he's pointing to all the things that make God God and saying, see, that's why God has free will, and he's right. And yet he's about to then say and conclude erroneously that since God has free will in his eternal state of no space, no time, no external causality, blah, 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 that therefore he can create us with free will, even though God is creating us in time and in space and surrounded by all sorts of causes and effects external to us how how can you possibly miss the mark more so i agree with you if we have at least one being namely god who has libertarian freedom then there's nothing incoherent about the notion that god could create beings with libertarian freedom this this blows my mind um i'm trying to be nice about this but how can you possibly point to all the things that make god god and then say well therefore god can give me those things what are you talking about dude all the things you just listed off as to why self-determinism is possible for God prove that it's only possible for God. Everything you just mentioned, which I agree with, right? Nothing outside of God, 
no space, no time, no external causality. That's what makes God God. That's why he's God. So all you've demonstrated there is self-determinism is a property of eternality, and it's a property of God. So how can you then jump to the conclusion that God can create? You're basically saying, right? And I'm not, I know you don't, you don't think we are gods with our free will. I'm not saying that. But logically speaking, you might as well say God could create another God like himself. God can create another entity that is self-determined. And that's just absurd, right? I'm, I'm trying to say it nicely. I don't know how you can make that conclusion. Namely God, who has libertarian freedom, then there's nothing incoherent about the notion that God could create beings with libertarian freedom. It's one of the most incoherent claims I've ever come across, to, to put it nicely. Well said. Uh, Brin Britton Stanfield, one of our resident Calvinists, kind of quasi-Calvinist, I would say, actually, uh, he says, there's nothing intuitive about libertarian free will to me. I do what I want to do all the time. My choices are determined by what I want. What would you say to him? An excellent point, right? So uh, here's a Calvinist who has studied issues, considered issues, and realizes that we do things for reasons. Um, I make choices because I want to choose them. And then I can ask, why did I want to choose them and answer those questions, right? Well, yeah, I, I think uh, I've, I've had Calvinists say this back to me. In fact, our friend Chris Day has said this to me uh, in person several times that actually what is intuitive is what Brenton says here. It's intuitive that I can, that whatever I do is what I wanted to do, right? Because that's the thing. You do whatever you want. You just can't want whatever you want, as Jerry Wall says. So, um, and yeah, that's absolutely correct. Uh, I pointed out in past episodes how you ask why, somebody why they did something, and if they say because they wanted to, and you ask them why they wanted to, um, they're either going to admit a determinative reason, right? Continue that chain of causes and effects, what caused them to want to do that, and admit determinism and lose the free will debate. Or they're going to circle back with a circular fallacy and just insert another layer of choice there and say that they chose to want to do it. Right, So you chose it. Why did you choose it? Because you wanted to choose it. Why did you want to choose it? Because you chose to want to choose it. And then why did, well, why did you make that choice? Right? Why did you choose to want to choose it? Well, because I wanted to choose to want to choose it. And then I chose to want to choose to want to choose. So again, completely circular, illogical, n nowhere found in reality. Right? But, and, and Chris Day likens it to a character in a story. You know, if we could imagine a character in a, in a written novel having um, a self-awareness, which they don't, uh, they would if they were able to be brought to life, right? I've, I've made the divine author example throughout almost every episode I've talked about. He says, well, they would, they, would, uh, they would intuit that they do whatever they want, but what they don't know is they're doing whatever the author of the story wrote them to do. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. There's nothing illogical about that at all, and it is precisely what we find in the Bible in multiple instances, right? I can't go back all through. This will be 10 hours long if I, if I go down every little rabbit trail here. But this is just undeniable, right? And, and in fact, at the end of episode one, I even asked the free will side the most important question. I want to bring this back up. It's important enough to, to spend time on it. Is it possible for God? Let's just pretend that your idea of free will is true, right? Let's just pretend. Is it possible for God to take an action that results in you doing what you want to do, but it's also what God wants you to do? Can God take an action that results in you doing what you want to do, but it's also what God wanted you to do. If your answer to that question is yes, then free will doesn't exist, okay? Because the author example he just brought up, and which he obviously disagrees with, clearly states that the author determines all of the story, including what his characters want to do. So his characters are doing what the author wants them to do, and yet they're also doing what they want to do, right? So if you admit that, 
if you try to hold a free will position and you admit that God can get you to do what he wants you to do, but it's also what you want to do, and you can call that free will, then you're not realizing it, but you are moving your reference point for freedom and your idea of free will away from God, because you just admitted he determined what you did. You did what he wanted you to do. So you're moving your reference point for freedom away from God. You're not free from God. He just determined, or whatever word you want to use, caused or brought about that you would do what he wanted you to do. You're not free from God. You've moved your reference point over to what, merely the fact that you wanted to do what you did. So I did what I wanted, and that, if that for you is a sufficient enough definition of free will, if your reference point for freedom is merely the fact that you're doing what you want, then you have no grounds to stand on in this debate. Because Calvinists, who believe in, like myself, who believe in full-blown determinism, of all things, believe that even what we want is part of that determinative, determinative reality, right? Even what we want. So, yeah, we do what we want. But there's reasons behind why we do what we want, right? And my first response, Chris, is we don't know what a fictional character would intuit about themselves because we can't ask them because they're fictional characters. Well, if the author gave you uh, that much detail, you would, right? The only way you could know that is if the author gave it to you as being an external person to the story as well. Now, if you want to talk about if you're going to interact with that character who's brought to life, well, that would sort of make you part of the story, right? You would be a character as well. And so uh, I don't really see the point of that particular um, answer. Uh, secondly, I, I don't actually think that I, I can't tell Brenton what he intuits about himself, but I don't think that's true for most people. Because right. whenever you do something that is boneheadedly stupid, your first response is, I, I wouldn't, I shouldn't have done that. If I had it to do over, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't do that. Okay, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a reality we all face. But what you're admitting there is determinism. You're admitting that if, if I would have known something else when that choice came about, I would have acted differently. You're admitting that your lack of information um, determined your particular choice in that instance. And if you had had more information, your choice would have been different. That information would have resulted in and determined you to choose something else. You're admitting determinism there, right? That was the wrong thing to do. And throughout all of that is the theme of, I could have done something other than that. Why did I do that? Right. And this comes back to the idea of ultimate ability to do otherwise and hypothetical ability to do otherwise, something we talked about in episode three extensively. Um, both sides, I don't care if you're a Calvinist or not, both sides are stuck with, you're going to do what you're going to do tomorrow, right? And even if you want to pretend like you have free will, you're going to do what you're going to do with your free will tomorrow, and you can't use your free will to change what you're going to do tomorrow, right? That's because you don't transcend your own existence. You are not an ultimate being, right? You did not map out your own life and your own existence and your own choices and then choose to actuate it. God did that as the divine author. God's the one who maps out your life. God's the one who forms your days when as yet there was none and writes them in his book, right? God's the one who is in that ultimate position. So when you're going to start talking about, well, I could have done otherwise, you can look backwards in time and talk about the hypotheticals, right? Um, I go back, I go to the store and I, I buy Coke most of the time because most of the time that's all that's on my mind, right? And I could have chosen Pepsi because it was a legitimate option in the sense of nothing was preventing me from choosing Pepsi or Dr. Pepper or Sprite or anything else. It was all there. But that doesn't mean that I could have ultimately chosen those things in particular instances. I made the choice that I made. I bought Coke because most of the time that's what I go to the store to buy. It's what's on my mind. It's what I want, right? And there's reasons I want it. It tastes the best to me. Maybe that's linked to the genetics and this and that. I don't know. It's all determinism, right? And if you're going to say, well, you could have chosen those other sodas, yeah, hypothetically speaking, they were all there. They were all legitimate options. Nothing forced me 
right? In terms of what I wanted, nothing forced me to choose Coke. But I'll tell you what, the only way I would have chosen in particular instances, the only way I would have chosen something other than Coke is if something else had determined me to do so. Maybe somebody wanted me to buy them a particular soda. That's why I went to the store. Maybe somebody, uh, ironically, was challenging whether or not I have, I have free will and said, well, go prove you have free will by buying those other sodas. But notice, that's a different situation. Now, my desire to prove that I have free will is what is moving me and determining me to choose something other than I normally choose. So anytime you're going to look at a choice, you have to look at each specific uh, circumstance and situation and just ask basic questions on why you did what you did. I would encourage everybody to do this, right? One of the, one of the simplest things you can do, and this is all personal, right? Just think back over yesterday's choices. This is something you do with yourself in your own mind. Think back over yesterday's choices and just be real about it. Why did you choose what you chose? Well, because you wanted to. Okay, but why did you want to? And just ask those questions. And and don't cheat. Just think about the circumstances and what you knew at the time, what you were thinking at the time, what was going on around you at the time. And you'll realize that you chose what you chose for a specific reason. Right? And in order for you to have chosen otherwise, something about that situation would have had to have been different. And as Braxton here says, well, if I would have known otherwise, yeah, that would have been a different situation. Right? This is not how we prove we have magical free will. You cannot escape the reality of determinism. So, long story short, let's come back to this point. Could you have ultimately done otherwise? No. And it doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or not. You cannot possibly believe that you could have ultimately done other than what you did. And you can't do ultimately other than what you're going to do tomorrow, and the next day, and the next day. God knew everything that you would do before he created you. Right? He created you knowing exactly what you would do. You are not in an ultimate position. You can't falsify the foreknowledge of God. You can't do anything other than what God knows you'll do. And if you're going to admit that, don't fall for the distractions of, well, that doesn't mean God caused it. Causation is irrelevant to this, right? What we're pointing out is that the future is fixed. And if it's fixed, then in the ultimate sense, you can't do other than what you will do, right? And if you say, oh, yeah, that's true, but I still have free will because I'm freely acting on, in, on my desires and doing what I want, that is a watered-down, irrelevant to this topic, irrelevant version of free will that nobody cares about because both sides believe we're doing what we want. Right. And, and I've always pointed back to the fact that if your desires are determining your choices, then you're just an instinctive being. And I, like I said, I, I, it, I'm interrupting this all the way. It's like every 10 seconds you have to say something. Um, if your desires are determining your choices, if, what do you mean if? That's, that's the way it is. You, you make a choice because you want to choose it. It's not the other way around, right? You, you can't flip reality on its head. And, and and you choosing what you want, right? It's just like basic aspect of reality. You choose what you want, right? He says that that makes you instinctive like an animal. No, it doesn't, right? And, and, and instinctive is the, the, difference, the difference between thought process, deliberation, intelligence, that being factored in your choices, right? Versus and just instinctive without any thought sort of choice or action. That's the difference there. It has nothing to do with you doing what you want. Uh, you have to recognize that your desires determine your choices. Who's acting upon instinctive reflexes, not actual moral choices. So we have several wants in, laid out in front of us, desires that we can choose to act to fulfill. So I can act to fulfill this desire over that desire. Um, it, it, we're not intuitive creatures that just instinctively you know, act to, to do what we were created by our creator to do. And, and this, is, this is funny. I pointed this out, I think, in episode one. 
um, they they try to put these this idea. Nobody's nobody's denying that we have multiple desires, right? You can have a hundred and one different desires. You walk into the donut shop. There's a hundred and one different donuts. You want them all because you just love donuts. You just want them all, right? And yet, at the end of the day, you chose one over all the others. Why? Why? Right? If free will is true, you, you, you can't give an answer to the why question because you admit determinism and you lose the debate. So you, you just have to say, well, it's a mystery. Right? It, I, just, I just chose it because I chose it. But we all know that's a ridiculous answer. Right? I can have 101 different desires for 101 different donuts, but I chose the one I wanted the most. Right? I chose the one I wanted the most in a basic situation. Now, you can complicate this situation by saying, oh, but um, I can choose what, you know, I can choose the most disgusting tasting donut to me, and that proves I have free will. No, it doesn't. Because in that situation, you're setting out to prove that you have free will, and that desire to prove that you have free will is determining you to choose something other than you would normally choose. Long story short, already went over this. The point is, guys, you have to be able to understand that you're, you can have 101 different desires, but they're going to be ranked, right? They're going to be ranked from most to least. And how can you ever possibly argue that you chose what you least wanted. And as soon as I say that, people are going to erupt and say, what are you talking about? This happens all the time. I do stuff I don't want to do all the time, right? I'd rather stay home than go to work, right? So my desire to stay home is greater than my desire to go to work, but I still go to work. So see, I've just disproven what you said. Well, not so fast because the situation isn't quite that simple. If you still went to work, then there's a, a reason that you went to work, right? And it's probably to make money so you don't be get behind on your bills and you can provide for your family. So when you understand, zoom out and look at all of the desires that are going on, yeah, you might have desired to stay home, but your desire to earn money and provide for your family outweighed and was greater than your desire to stay home. So you went to work. And I once again challenge anybody, think over your, your past choices. Think over yesterday's choices and think over especially times you feel like you're doing things you don't want to do. Remember, nobody's denying that there are not more than one desire involved in a particular uh, scenario. But you always, if it is a an unforced, uncoerced choice that you're doing, you're just doing what you want. You're always doing what you most want, given those circumstances. Even when you think you're doing something you don't want to do. You're wanting to do it for other reasons, and that want is greater than your want to not do whatever it is that you actually end up doing. I challenge the other side to provide me with a single hypothetical example or real example to disprove what I've been putting forth. Show me one instance where you're doing something other than your greatest desire, and I can pick it apart each and every single time and show that no, in fact, you did do what you most wanted to do as long as you're taking everything into account. And, and if you ever made a choice and you didn't know why, that doesn't prove you have free will. That just proves that there's a determinative reason that you don't know about, right? I've made choices and I have no idea why I did them, right? Looking back, I can't figure it out. It was, as he said, maybe it was a stupid decision. I wish I had known more, right? That doesn't prove you have free will. That just proves that you're ignorant as to the determinative reasons that is going on behind the scenes, right? This goes back to the idea of illusions and gambling. And just because you don't know what's going on behind the scenes doesn't mean that those determinative things are not there and are not occurring. And so when, you, when he says something like my choices are determined by what I want, then you just take it a step back. Who determines what you want at any given time and, and place? Well, not necessarily a who. Ultimately, it would be God. But also what determined what you want, right? And I don't know how many examples I have to give. Donuts, soda, 
guys, you gotta you gotta think about this on yourselves. Some of these, a lot of when you're gonna talk about choices, especially moral ones, they're personal, right? You are you for specific reasons, right? What you think, what you experience, past experience, current state of mind, what mood you're in, all of these things are going to contribute to and determine a final choice that you're going to make. And you can come to this realization by just asking basic questions. Well, God does on Calvinism. And so ultimately, so ultimately, that's just plain old determinism. Wow, we actually threw the world ultimately there. Um, yeah. Um, it's just God has ultimately determined what you want so that you will act uh, instinctively, I would say, upon what God has caused you to want in those given circumstances, which he also meticulously, providentially uh, micromanages according to the Calvinistic perspective. And so that's where we push back on that. But Right. So that's a sarcastic way of saying that God, the creator and sustainer of all things, causes his universe, causes his creation to function in a coherent manner. Everything happens for a reason, including your choices, including the fact that you wanted to do them and why you wanted to do them, right? Yes, God ultimately is causing it all, but he's causing it in particular ways and there's a coherency to it. Right? There's a story that is unfolding. Nevertheless, here, here's what uh, John Piper says. God is the only being who has libertarian free will. He, is, he, he uses the term ultimately self-determining and is himself ultimately the disposer of all things, including all choices. So he's a disposer of all choices. Our choices, Satan's choices, the molester's choices, every choice. That's correct. In episode one, I said very clearly, God is the chooser of our choices. And the reason that's not a contradiction is because God is in the ultimate position as the divine author the planner, the purposer, and the determiner of what comes to pass in his creation, including our choices. God chooses, right, actively. Not reactively, but actively. In the same way an author actively chooses what his characters will do in his story, okay? Can you, can you possibly deny that when an, when an author writes a story that he is making choices? He's choosing that this will happen. He's choosing that that will happen. And he is also choosing what his characters will choose, right? And that's not a contradiction because... There's a, there's a difference in transcendency and storyline level. God is the disposer of all choices. However many or diverse other intervening causes are, on this definition, no human being has free will at any time. Okay? So no human being has free will, but God has free will. Yeah. According to the way he's defined it. At any time. Neither before or after the fall or in heaven. So even Adam and Eve did not have free will as being a, a libertarian free will could have done otherwise, which seems to find the... Again... Could have done otherwise in what sense? Hypothetically, right? Hypothetically, nothing forced them to do what they did. They could have done otherwise only in the sense of having the hypothetical means to have done it. I could have bought other sodas because I had the money. I had the hands and the arms to pick it up and carry it to the blah, blah, blah. Hypothetical means. That is not the same thing as saying ultimately could have done otherwise. And I want these guys to just come out and say it. Can free will proponents just come out and blatantly claim that they can ultimately could ultimately have done otherwise? Can you, can you really say that? I don't know how you could logically justify that claim. In the face of what the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession of Faith says uh, in, in their chapters 9 on free will. And if you look at their idea of free will, they're simply referencing the idea that man is not forced to do what they do. They are acting on their desires. Again, definitions of free will are extremely important. Both points 1 and 2 seem to indicate that Adam and Eve were not determined by anything outside themselves to choose one way or the other. And in other books, Piper appeals to mystery. So I'm not sure how that fits, because it seems to me he would say that that uh, Adam and Eve chose to sin because God decreed for them to choose to sin. And I pointed out a couple episodes ago, um, 
The only mystery I will ever appeal to is not knowing the determinative reason behind why Adam and Eve fell or why Satan fell. Not knowing the exact detail. Like, was did they have? Did Satan have his own tree of knowledge of good and evil? Right? I don't know exactly what in creation caused Satan to have that sinful thought. But something did, right? So me not knowing what it was doesn't mean that I don't know that it was there, right? So that's that's the mystery that I would guess John Piper would be appealing to and why he's not contradicting himself when he says, well, I don't know exactly what caused Satan on the storyline level, what caused Satan to do what he did, but I know that God ultimately caused it all, right? Uh, he is the decisive cause of that, that choice. It seems to me that would be the only way for him to, to land. Uh, and decisive cause... You know, the way that's worded makes it sound like, well, you're just, you're not making any choice at all. Guys, you're not on the ultimate position, okay? You don't choose your choices. Let me say that again. You do not choose your choices. If you're going to say you chose what you chose, that's two choices there. That's two layers of choice. And you don't exist on the ultimate level. God chose your choices, and you choose, right? God chose your choices on the ultimate level as the author, and as the story unfolds, you make those choices, but it's a choice, right? You, you, you didn't choose what you chose. You just chose as you lived your life. And so um, before or after the fall, in heaven, are creatures ultimately self-determining. There are great measures of self-determination, as the Bible often shows. And, and this is why people like to say, well, if God chose my choices, then they're not my choices. Well, what are you talking about? That's like saying, since God created you, you're not you. W what do you mean by that? That makes no sense, right? You are what you are because God created you. God made you what you are right? And you choose what you chose because God's the author of all things. He determined what you would chose. There's, you're still making choices. Just because you're choosing what God determined you to choose does not mean that you are not making choices, right? God determined that you would exist, right? God created you. That doesn't mean that you aren't you. You don't have to create yourself in order for you to be real or you to be you, just as you don't have to ultimately determine your choices for them to be quote-unquote your choices, Again, you got to stop thinking of yourself in the ultimate position somehow alongside God or autonomously free from God. It just doesn't make any sense. But never is man the ultimate or decisive cause of his preferences and choices. So man is not the decisive cause of his preferences and choices. I don't know if I'd word it that way, but I know what John Piper's getting at. He's not the ultimate decisive cause, right? I agree with that. He's not the ultimate decisive cause, but he is the a decisive cause on the storyline level, you, ch you chose what you chose, right? Who is then? Well, God would have to be the decisive cause of men's preferences and choices. So if you prefer... In the transcendent position, that's correct, right? Uh, Same-sex attraction, then that God is the decisive cause of that. If you prefer to molest, kill, rape, still destroy, then God is the cause of that. It seems that would be the, the conclusion of this worldview, and this is why we we push back so vehemently against it because it, it really does undermine the goodness, the character, the holiness of God in our estimation. And i just like to ask, how does your view escape the reality that God is upholding the existence of all things, including your brain and your spiritual brain, if you want to call it that, your mind, as you think those thoughts that you think, right? If you're going to be a good little Christian and admit that you're not a self-sustained entity, you want to talk, talk biblically about being upheld by God's power, that you're not a self-sustained thing, right? You want to adhere to Hebrews 1.3 and Acts 17.28 and Colossians 1.17? You want to adhere to those verses? How do you score those verses with all these emotional things you want to bring up, right? Because my claim is, you want to talk about sinful thoughts, like lustful thoughts, right? All these emotional topics. Those things can't even occur unless God's power brings it about. That's what the Bible teaches, right? And if you disagree with that, 
then you're teaching that there is another ultimate power out there at work. Another another autonomous, self-sustained entity that is self-powered and causing its own causes and effects, and that's what's causing, ultimately causing those thoughts and those choices and those actions, right? You want to go down that road? Logically and consistently, you would have to, right? And I'm just waiting for the, the free will side to just come out and say, yeah, yeah, I believe I'm a self-sustained autonomous entity free from God, and I cause my own choices and, and, and thoughts and actions, and, and, and I'm an ultimate power. I'd love to hear them just come out and say that. So when man's agency and God's agency are compared, both are real. I don't know what that means exactly. Both are real. What I just laid out, right? Just, be, just because God creates you and you're not an ultimate being doesn't mean you're not real, right? Duh. You're real because God made you real, right? Your existence, like I pointed this out in episode one, you exist and God exists. Congratulations, you have something in common with God, you both exist. Does that mean the nature of your existence is identical to God's nature of existence? No, you're not self-sustained, you're not eternal, you're not self-powered, you're not self, I would say, self-determined, right? Your existence is of a different nature than God's, you're finite, you're reliant upon God, you are not self-determined, you are a determined entity, you are part of God's creation, So in the same way that you don't need to be in ultimate control of whether or not you exist, you don't need to create yourself in order for your existence to be quote-unquote real, in the same way you don't need to be in ultimate control of your will or your choices, or as Leighton has said, create your choices out of nothing, for those choices to be real either. Um, what does he mean by real? I, I don't, he doesn't really define what he means by real. What he means by that is we're really making choices, it's just really determined by God. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, which means they're not real as far as we're concerned because they're not real choices. Because what is a choice? Right. As far as you're concerned, they're not real choices. Because for you, choice is only self-determined, ultimate, eternal, um, basically all the things they listed out as God having and the reason God has self-determinism. A choice is a selection between available options. I point out in episode one, I I keep referencing episode one, it was five hours long, you guys should check it out. I point out in episode one, a selection between multiple options that idea of choice, that concept of choice, only works in a finite existence, in creation, right? We are presented with options from outside of ourselves, A, B, C, and D, and we choose from amongst those options. But we didn't choose to be making that choice. We didn't choose to be in the situation by which those were, were then making a choice amongst uh, uh, possible options. That is not identical to, that, that's, that's reactive choice, right? Choice for us is reactive, Okay, we're reacting to situations, to options presented to us by outside sources. Our choice, choice in a finite realm, is reactive. That is not the same thing as God's choice in the eternal realm. When God chose to create the universe, it's not like he woke up one morning, got in his car, was driving down the road, and came to a fork in the road, and left said, don't create, and right said, create, so he had to make a choice and react. That's not what God did. God's choice to create was active. Okay, so so that's that. Listen to this again. A choice is a selection between available options. You think that's what God did when God created? I point out pointed out in my episode on unconditional election. When God created, do you think that He was choosing amongst available options? Right, like He could have created humans or lizardoids or uh, flying pink elephants, and those are options presented to Him by outside sources. And then He made a choice and He decided, oh, I'll go with humans because they seem pretty cool. That's not what happened. God's choice of creation was active. He determined, he, he, he planned from within himself. 
I'm going to create humans this way. I'm going to create trees this way. I'm going to create planets this way. I'm going to create the universe this way. It was not a reactive choice on God's part. And yet here's Leighton saying that, well, the only real choice is when you're choosing amongst options. That's what we do in time. That's what finite choice looks like, right? That's what our choice, our reactive, reality-based, finite choice looks like, okay? And we're not making a selection between available options, so it's not real. You are making a selection between available options. They're not ultimately available, quote-unquote. We've already gone over this, okay? You cannot ultimately do other than what you're going to do tomorrow. You believe God knows the future. You believe the future is fixed, even with free will. So you can't use your free will to do other than what you're going to do with your free will tomorrow. Does that mean what you're going to do with your free will, in your view, tomorrow isn't real free will? Right? If you're going to be logically consistent with what you're trying to argue against Calvinism here, then even your own view would refute free will. Because if you can't use your free will to do other than what you're going to do with your free will tomorrow, then according to you, what you're going to do tomorrow isn't real free will choices, is it? We are intuitively, I mean, we are instinctively doing what God has reflexively caused us to want to do in any given circumstance. And that's just a really bad representation of, of what's going on. You're not instinctively, you know, there's a difference between instinct and deliberation, thought process, deliberation, and choice, right? The difference between, this is, this is so funny, free will camp seems to think that free will, the magical thing called free will, is what differentiates you from animals, right? They think that that's the difference. Animals don't have free will, and you do have it. That's what makes you human. And I'm going to say, that's ridiculous. You don't have free will. Animals don't have free will. But that doesn't mean that you're just instinctive like them. The difference between you and animals is level of intelligence, thought process, deliberation, right? Emotion. All the things that God gave you, created you with, determined, God determined you to be different from animals, right? For all those reasons, and they're real reasons. But the difference isn't free will, okay? So... Just because God has determined all things, including what you will choose, doesn't mean that you're instinctively choosing them. You're choosing them for reasons. And anytime you've ever asked somebody why they did something, does that mean you were assuming they were doing it for, in for instinctive reasons? No. You wanted a, a reality-based, determinative reason. Why did you do that? Why did you do it? What were you thinking? Uh, who, who upset you? You know, on and on. There's just all the reasons are there. Um, so, uh, but God's is our, but God's is decisive yet. Here's the mystery that causes so many to stumble. God is always decisive in such a way that man's agency is real. Again, there's that word and his responsibility remains. In other words, God determines what you will decide to do, but yet you are still held accountable or responsible for what he decided for you to do. Right. And the idea of responsibility covered it in episode three, responsibility is part of creation. Okay. So if he's quoting Piper here and Piper called it a mystery, then I want to I wanna respectfully disagree with Piper. I do not believe the idea of God determining what you do and holding you responsible is a mystery at all. Okay, It's only a mystery when you falsely assume, or intuitively assume, that if I'm going to be held responsible, I need to be free from God. Right? If God's going to hold me responsible, I need to be free from him. That is something you are assuming. That is something that is taught nowhere in the Bible. The Bible teaches you're never free from God. The Bible also teaches that you're held responsible. There's no mystery there, right? Responsibility is a part of creation. Responsibility is not a transcendent rule that God needs to conduct creation by. So when God went to create the universe and create humans, he didn't have to open up the creation handbook and go to chapter 3, subheading B, where it says, if you're going to create humans and hold them responsible, then you got to give them free will. And so God said, oh man, well, I guess that's what I have to do then. Uh, if I want to hold him responsible, got to give him free will. I got to play by that human responsibility rule. 
That's absurd. Okay? Human responsibility is part of creation. Human responsibility wouldn't exist unless creation existed, right? It's not a rule that God has to play by. And so God has built human responsibility into the way he's done things. He didn't have to do it that way, but God chose to do it this particular way. Human responsibility is an aspect of creation. It's a way that God determined creation to be, okay? God determined that he's going to create humans, that he's going to give them commands, that they'll obey or disobey those commands and be punished or rewarded accordingly, right? That was all up to him. He didn't have to do it that way. He chose to. And this is the mystery that, uh, that John Piper ultimately appeals to with regard to, to this particular point. Um, so and as far as mystery is concerned, um, we've given all the biblical examples, right? God determined that Pharaoh not let the people go, and yet he punished Pharaoh and destroyed him for not letting the people go. So... I just explained how that works, why it's not a mystery, right? Because I don't assume that Pharaoh needs to be free from God in order for God to hold him responsible. I let the Bible show me that Pharaoh was never free from God. God was in control every step along the way and still held Pharaoh responsible. I let the Bible determine my beliefs instead of using my intuitions to interpret the Bible. So how would you understand God destroying Pharaoh for something that God determined that he'd do? Okay, and judicial hardening, blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, God just allowed Pharaoh. It's so funny. People actually say, when God himself says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. What that really means is God's saying, I will allow Pharaoh to harden his own heart and not let the people go. That's, that's what they get out of that. And the only possible way to get that interpretation is to start with free will and forcefully interpret the text around that lens. So that, that kind of gives us understanding at least of what John Piper's uh, position is on what free will is. He doesn't believe we actually have free will in, in that sense, that we ultimately are the decisive cause of the decisions and choices we make, but that ultimately God is the decisive cause of the decisions and choices we, we make. And so with that, let's listen to this clip and then uh, Dr. Hunter will let you reply. As we, let's turn to the book and let's think through, um, throughout the book, you return again and again to the issue of assumptions. Okay, this is a major thing. You, you can't read through this book and not pick up. John Piper thinks a lot about our assumptions um, and how they influence the way that we read the Bible. So help us understand two things. One, why is it so important to be aware of our assumptions? And two, why and how should we test them by the scriptures rather than impose them on the scriptures? What, what, and we've already sort of covered those, those points, right? Okay, so just, just to highlight what the question is, uh, he's talking about our assumptions. This is what we are re being referring to as our, what we believe intuitively. In other words, uh, there's a lot of quotes from Calvinists out there that, that we all naturally are Arminians. I've heard them say that. We're all natural Pelagians. I've even heard that in the more derogatory way of saying it. Uh, and this is ultimately what he gets is getting to. Well, wait a minute. Uh, Before you go on, are you saying that in other written stuff, Piper says what he says here, but explicitly says that he thinks everyone is naturally inclined to believe they have, that they're Arminians, like basically that we have libertarian freedom? Um, just a quick note, I pointed out, it wouldn't matter um, if if we grant that everybody does. It's just, it still doesn't lend any, it's like, a, you know, who cares? Who cares if every person who's ever existed first thought they had free will? It's irrelevant to whether or not you have it. It's, whether, it's irrelevant to whether or not it's true. It's irrelevant to whether or not it's biblical. I, I hesitate to say I've heard Piper say it in specific because I can't recall for sure if it was exactly John Piper, but I know I've heard other Calvinists say yeah. it. Um, and, and I know you probably have as well. Um, I've, I've heard him use the term Pelagian. Uh, matter of fact, I'm, I'm 
Well, I wouldn't I wouldn't use Pelagian or anything like that. I'll just admit what I admitted earlier. Sure, everybody th- starts off thinking you have free will until this thing called the Bible comes along and convinces you otherwise. Almost 99% sure it was R.C. Sproul who said we are naturally all Pelagian. In other words, we're kind of born Pelagians. Meaning, yeah. well, in his mind, we're born intuitively believing we have the capacity to make our own free choices. Well, I think that's uh, important to know that because, you know, um, for individuals in the audience who might think along the lines of our friend Chris Date and colleague Chris Date that, um, well, no, what's intuitive is not the libertarian freedom, but just that you have that, that you do whatever you want. The compatibilism is basically true. Um, yeah. And, and late, you know, Leighton just said, oh, what's intuitive that we make uh, free choices, our own free choices. Well, if you don't define what you mean by free, then again, yeah, I, I do what I want. It's my choice, right? I'm, I'm choosing it. I'm doing what I want. Again, that that can be true of determinism or not. Okay, you have to be more specific. Are you talking about autonomous, ultimate choice that is free from God? For those that would think that way, it's relevant to note that even if you don't think you have that intuition, many Calvinists do think they have uh, that intuition um, or started with that intuition. And uh, so I think that's I think that's a relevant point. However, yeah, it's a problem with intuitions. Everybody's got them. Right. And yet. How do we how do we decide who's right and who's wrong? There's only one way to do that. As we move on, I think we'll see another intuition that we do all share that does that isn't directly libertarian free will. That that I I simply won't believe anyone who tells me this isn't their intuition. But we'll just save that for later. Gotcha. All right, we continue on. What are assumptions doing, and why do they matter for us? Yeah. Well, it might help instead of speaking in generalities to give an example. Okay. Um, the reason they're important to state a generality is that we tend to see things in the light of our assumptions and interpret them to fit our assumptions. We bring, all of us do this, it's not pointing a finger at anybody, it's just all of us bring life experiences and conceptions of reality to what we experience in and outside books in the Bible and we tend to see what we see in connection with those assumptions and that can give a meaning which might be helpful Uh if it's a true assumption or hurtful, harmful, misleading if it's a wrong assumption. And he's just, he's completely 100% right so, so far. Okay, so he's saying something I think you and I would agree with here, that we all do have assumptions that we bring to the text. Um, yeah. I, I've always said, I think a good assumption that we could bring to the text is God's character is good, and he's right, he's holy. Right. And therefore, however you read the Bible, you should never come to the conclusion that he would do something immoral and wrong, uh, and, and intuitively immoral and wrong, and therefore you should do a, a better job at, at, at hermeneutics. For example, when the Bible says something like what we've talked about, figures of speech, like the White House put Iraq into shambles, doesn't literally mean Barack Obama went over and started cutting off heads and burning down buildings in Iraq, but that he removed his troops, the, the American troops, so that Iraq could do its own free uh, will. Uh, and the, the bad players there in Iraq did all those horrible things simply because we removed our power that was keeping order. In the same way, God can remove his hand of protection. He can allow people to autonomously act freely. And sometimes uh, the scriptures will use vernacular that seems to blame God. God uh, did this thing or God uh, made this to happen, but it's actually a figure of speech, meaning he removed his hand of protection so that people would act freely. You see what I mean? So when I said earlier that when Pharaoh heart, God said I'll hardness Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go, what that really means is God will just let Pharaoh be Pharaoh. <laughs> like, okay, you really think that that's, that's what's going on here. But really quickly, back to his point about how, well, God can just remove his restraint and let you do what you're going to do. Um, if if you're going to admit, you want to pretend you have free will, and yet you're going to claim that God can, at any time, prevent you and stop you from doing what you, what you would do so that you would do something else, and especially if you admit that he does, in fact, do that from time to time, um, then how is that really free will? 
If you only end up doing what God allows you to do, how is that actually free will? And it's not, right? It's not free will at all. It's just, once again, another illusion that you have, right? Because God allows you to do certain things, and you do those things, so you think that you were the ultimate reason you did them. But the ultimate reason you did them is because God let you do them, because he's in the ultimate position. And if he didn't want you to do them, he would have not let you do it or caused you to do something else. So you're basically in a contradiction here. You're trying to pretend that God can be in ultimate control at certain times, and yet man can also be in ultimate control at other times. And it just doesn't work, right? Um, and that's what, good, that's what good apologists do all the time, is they, they answer the... the the opposition from the atheist that says God's character is flawed, uh, God's not a God in the Bible that's worth worshiping because look at how bad he is, good apologists like you all the time are going through and explaining these kinds of figures of speech throughout the scripture and why we should maintain, no, God is good, uh, his character is right, it's holy, it's good. What would you say to that? Before Braxton responds, um, this idea of God being good when he does particular things, um, there's a lot to cover here, but to try to make a long story short, um, we can't we can't assume that God is playing by rules that are external to himself, right? So when we say that God is good or that God is doing something good, that doesn't mean that we're looking over at a list of things that God's allowed to do and saying that since he's playing by those rules, therefore he's being good, right? When you get to God's level, he is the standard of what is good. So anything that God does is good by definition. It's good because God does it, Okay. God is not good in doing it because it was good. It's good because God does it, right? And the only way to make sense out of this is to recognize what does it mean to be bad? What is bad? What is evil? What is sin? Sin is the breaking of God's law. Sin is lawlessness, according to the Bible, right? I think everybody would agree that sin is the breaking of the law of God. So sin deals with laws, right? The only things that can sin, therefore, by definition of breaking laws, are the creature's whom God gives laws to. See, God gives us laws in time, in creation, and we sin when we break those laws, right? That's what it means to do bad, quote-unquote. That's what it means to do evil, right? So the reason God can't sin isn't because he's playing by a list of external rules, right? The reason God can't sin is because nobody gave God any laws that he could break to begin with. There's no law that says, God thou shalt not, right? God thou shalt not, cause sin, for example, or determine that sin comes to pass. God, thou shalt not uphold sinners while they sin, right? If God had those laws, then he would be doing something bad. But I want you to notice that it doesn't matter what God quote-unquote does, right? We, 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 we covered that in the last episode about the difference in God in the transcendent position, storyline level. Um, what does it mean to say God is quote-unquote doing something? God can be said to be ultimately doing all things because he's the sustainer of all things, right? Nothing can come to pass apart from his sustaining causative power, so, of course, you can say God causes the sun to rise and causes your heart to beat and causes the rain to fall and causes the, you know, the wind. And God is doing everything. God is working all things after the counsel of his will, right? From God and through God and to God are all things. That's speaking of God in the transcendent position. And people usually respond by saying, well, so, so God, could, God could murder and it wouldn't be murder. That's what you're saying? God can sin and it wouldn't be sin? That's not what I'm saying at all. God can't sin, period, right? By definition, there are no laws that he's breaking, Right? When God, God takes a life, he gave the life to begin with. He has the right to take it away anytime, anytime he chooses. The, the Bible says this, right? You know, God can't steal because everything belongs to him to begin with. God can't have any other gods before himself because they don't exist. On and on and on. 
right? God's law is applicable to and, and given to his creation, okay? That's the point. And evil, therefore, is the breaking of that law. Evil is something that occurs in creation, right? So when we go back to the things that God does, it was good for God to do whatever it is he does. It was good for God to create. It was good for God to, as Calvinists would say, it, is, it was good for God to plan and purpose sin, right? God had a good purpose in the occurrence of sinful actions. It was good for God to do that. And to, to drive this point home, I just want to ask the other side. Again, Hebrews 1.3, God upholds your existence even while you're sinning. That's something God does, okay? Now, simple question. I'm not going to ask you simply, why is it okay for God to uphold your existence while you sin? I'm going to ask you, is it good for God to do that? Why don't you answer that question on the free will side? Is it good for God to uphold your existence while you sin? Is it a morally good thing for God to do when he does that? When God upholds the existence of someone who is torturing someone else, or abusing someone else, or raping someone else, when God upholds the abuser and upholds the victim by his power, and, and those things are carried out, is God doing a good thing when he does that? He's obviously not doing a bad thing, because there's no law that says, God, thou shalt not uphold people while they sin. So, he, is he doing a good thing? Well, that's the only other option, right? Either God's doing a bad thing or a good thing. We know he's not doing a bad thing for the reasons I've laid out. So it was good for God to uphold sinners while they sin, right? Because God has a good purpose in everything that he does, right? So this is just one more question to pile on to the free will position and get them to answer. Not was it, is it okay for God to uphold sinners while they sin? Is God doing a good thing when he does that? And if you admit that it is good for God to uphold sinners while they sin, again, I'm not, how mu I'm not sure how much closer you can have God being, metaphysically speaking, to the idea of sin and a sin occurring than being the one whose power is upholding the sinner while they sin. If you admit that fact of reality, and you admit also that God is not just excused from doing that, as if it might be a bad thing for him to do, but you're actually going to affirm that God is doing a good thing when he upholds sinners while they sin, then how could you possibly object or say that it's bad for God to plan or purpose or determine that sin come to pass for a good purpose, as, as Calvinists say. How can it be okay and actually good for God to directly uphold sinners by his power while they sin, and yet somehow be bad and horrible and malign God's character for him to simply plan, as, as the divine author, plan or purpose sin to come to pass? You have a massive double standard set up there when you stop and think about it. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. So, so commenting on this, to set this up in a way that hopefully it will summarize what we've said so far and put forward what we see as problematic about this, um, a good argument for something will have premises that are plausible, which means more likely to be true than false. So for those that may not be uh, aware of how syllogisms and arguments work, if you have something like God made all planets, Earth, that's, that's premise one. Premise two, Earth is a planet. Conclusion, therefore God made Earth. Okay, that should be something that we can all agree on, right? Well, both of those things are plausible. They're more likely to be true than false. They, they, if it's a planet, God made it. See, now, and he's using this this whole context of debate of this is more likely, that's more likely, is because Braxton is very commonly engaged with atheists who don't believe the Bible. But in our context, we're Christians who all accept the Bible, right? So we're not just throwing out intuitions and saying, well, which is more probable? We're going to the Bible. Earth is a planet, therefore God made Earth. Okay, so whenever we're talking about the, 
go back to your thing that I know that I exist, my belief that I exist. What would you ever do? What evidence could you bring to convince me that I, Braxton Hunter, actually don't exist? Now, you could maybe convince someone else that Braxton Hunter does not exist, but me, myself, how are you going to convince me that I don't exist? What data, what evidence, what arguments? Any argument, and this is the key, this is very important, any argument brought to show me that I don't exist is going to have premises like that that are less likely to be true than my immediate experience that I am true, that I do exist. I'm not really sure I can disagree with with that, other than to point out once again that that's if we don't have any other thing involved, like the Bible, right? When we as Christians come together and we debate, we are we have a common ground in understanding the Bible, right, as as the truth of God, and so we argue upon that basis. And so it's going to it's 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 going to fail. That's like the greatest intuition I could possibly have is that I exist, right? Well, um, the or at least the most obvious, not the greatest in importance, but the most obvious. Okay, so when it comes to my libertarian freedom or morality, those kind of things, that, that there are really good and bad things, right and wrong things, or that I really can choose to do other than whatever I ended up doing, that is not as strong perhaps as my belief that I exist, but it's so incredibly strong. It is incredibly strong, such that any argument you bring, that John Piper wants to bring to show that I don't have libertarian freedom is going to have to have premises that are more likely to be true than my own immediate intuition that I do have free will. Now, since Piper and you and I and many of our listeners are all Bible-believing Christians who, who believe in the authority of Scripture, he could do that by bringing, bringing Bible verses. Right, and that, that's my point. Is That's the common ground we share, and so that is the road we have to go down, right? We're not just going to present these, uh, these this clash of intuitions and just say, well, which is more likely to be true? That's that's We don't care about likeliness of truth. We care about truth, right? And even if uh, we want to just pretend for a moment that maybe Christianity might be false, well, oh well, right? But but as far as our discussion is concerned, we are assuming it to be true, right? We're using the Bible as our foundational um, source, so to speak, of, of how we then understand our intuitions. The bad news for Piper is that, as you demonstrate every week on this show, Leighton, multiple times a week, is is that the Bible doesn't isn't best explained that way. It is. That's just your opinion. It, it doesn't. It, it isn't best explained on Calvinist interpretations. We would say. Yeah, that's your opinion. It's best explained on on libertarian uh, interpretations, at least much of the time, most of the time. And so that's your opinion. My opinion is Calvinism does best explain the Bible. So who's right, right? And that's where we have to use the Bible in conjunction with logic, and actually hash these things out, right? So he doesn't have scripture to go to 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 turn that around, and our intuition is so incredibly strong. I don't know what he means by that. John Piper doesn't have scripture to go to to disprove your intuition of free will. Um, I can go all the way down the line, right? God upholds your existence at all times. How can you possibly be free from God when every moment of your existence relies upon his power, right? I've argued with people uh, in, uh, over this in the past, and they'll actually come out and say, God can uphold my existence and yet not be in control of me. That's like saying God is not in control of his own power. That's absurd. That is the level of absurdity that a commitment to free will will drive you to, right? To say that God is not in control of his own power, right? That's absurd. Um, and we can go through all the verses, right? There, I don't have time to do it here. We've done it in past episodes. To say that, well, there's just no verses to sort of disprove my intuition of free will. Uh, wow. That... Um that it's that's problematic, but um, th there's another thing I want to say on this that's related. Even if, say, Brenton or whoever it was, yeah, Brenton, Stanfield, and others in the chat would say, 
Well, I don't have that intuition that I have libertarian freedom. I just have intuition that, that whatever I do is what I wanted to do. And that still can be determinism, like Piper wants. Okay, but let me ask you this, and this is where you've really got to be honest with yourself and look in the mirror and ask yourself what you really believe and not what your position demands. Do you not have an extremely strong intuition that uh, to punish someone for doing what they were determined to do unchangeably, that that is uh, wrong, that that is not a good thing? Is it not an intuition to you that when I say God determined, God determined that uh, this particular man would rape and murder a child, he commanded the man not to rape and murder the child through secondary scriptures and things like that. The man does what God unchangeably determined that he must do and then uh, and then punishes him for that, even though it was what he determined right. him to do but told him not to do. Yeah, let's let's test your strong, extra strong intuition um, in, in light of scripture. And see, this is where, again, humanistic analogies and trying to take what we experience one human being to another and then project that onto god in the ultimate position this is where these types of errors come from right so yeah if i am going to determine that someone else do something right number one i didn't create that person right i don't have a right over that person to determine what they're doing in the first place i don't uphold that person's existence at all moments they don't owe me anything right we're on the same quote-unquote level as creations right so when we start saying, well, yeah, it would be, it's intuitively wrong for me to determine that someone else do something and then punish that person for what I determined them to do. Well, I would agree with that. But for the reasons I just laid out, right? I didn't create them. I don't have the right over them to do that. To take that and project it onto God, to take that intuition and that assumption, project it onto God is where you go wrong. Because here he is saying, let me replay this. He commanded the man not to rape and murder the child through secondary scriptures and things like that. The man does what God unchangeably determined that he must do. So God commanded Pharaoh not to let the people go, and yet Pharaoh did precisely what God unchangeably determined that he do, not let the people go, and then punishes him. And then, uh, and then punishes him for that. Yeah, punishes Pharaoh for that. Even though it was what he determined him to do but told him not to do. Yeah. Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let the people go, but I will harden his heart so that he won't, and destroy him. Right, so this is again, guys. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. We've got, we've covered Pharaoh before. This simple point proves my point. His entire intuition here that he holds so strongly, like how could you, how could you possibly deny it? Well, I don't deny it on the storyline level. I don't deny it from one human being to another, from myself to you. I don't deny that intuition at all. It would be wrong for me to determine what you did and then hold you responsible and punish you for it. That rule is not the same application when you bring it up to God, right? And Pharaoh's case proves it outright. So you've got a choice to make now, okay? And this is this is really important, okay? The, the entire point of this the episode they made and my response to it, this idea of intuitions. You can look at the case of Pharaoh, which is word for word what he just laid out. God determined, God commands somebody not to rape, and then determines that they rape, and then punish them, punishes them for doing what they unchangeably did. Blah, blah, blah. God said, go to Pharaoh, command him to let the people go, but I will harden his heart so that he won't. And it is identical to what you just said. So now you have a choice, right? You can either understand that God is allowed to do that and modify your intuition, maybe not completely destroy it, because I, I, I already said it's applicable to a human-to-human-to-human -to -human -to -human basis, right? 
But you can take the Bible and let the Bible destroy and shatter or alter your intuitions and bring your intuitions in line with the Bible, or you can stubbornly hold on to your intuitions, refuse to alter them, refuse to let them go, and then change the Bible to fit your intuitions. Well, when, when God said he would harden Pharaoh's heart, all that really meant was he would let Pharaoh harden his own heart. You see what, you see what these intuitions do when you don't let go of them? You change the Bible to fit them, and that's the danger here. That's the entire point here. If, you, if there's not something inside of you that says, no, that is not justice, um, if someone wants to say that, I'm, not, I'm just not sure I believe them. Now, they can say, yeah, I have that intuition, but um, God's God, and there's you know, Scripture to consider and all that. Okay, that's fine. We can talk about that. Yeah, I'd like to. Just, just ask about it. But if someone won't at least admit that they have that intuition. I admitted it right now. I just put a context to it, right? Human to human. That, that strikes against justice. I'm just not sure I can believe them. Okay, fair enough, but I put a context to what I said, okay? Uh, I have that intuition, and yet when the Bible presents me with clear case of why that's not applicable to God, then I, I understand it. But this idea of trying to emotionalize justice, the idea of justice, onto these, well, you know, this, this murder, that evil, this rape, that torture, and all, you know, I could just as easily ask these particular questions of the free will side, right? And talk about why is that just, okay? God knew if he created the person that would rape a child that they would rape them. And he knew if he created the child that would be raped by that person, if he creates them both, that that's what's going to happen. So how is that fair? How is that just? Did the person who was going to do the raping choose to be created? It wasn't up to them, ultimately, to be created. Did the child the poor child that would be abused choose to be created? No, it wasn't up to the child ultimately either, right? It was ultimately all up to God. So how is that fair? How how is there how is there justice there? Right? If these two people don't have this ultimate autonomous choice in their own existence and what God knows they will do. Right? God could have created them differently. God created created that person who was going to abuse the child on 50 years later, they, they wouldn't be abusing the child. They could have created the child 50 years earlier. Then the child wouldn't be being abused, right? This can go in 100 million different directions, and you need to be able to, to answer it, right? And then we zoom into when the, ac the actual thing is occurring. The only way those things can come to pass is if God upholds them by his power and brings them to pass. So how is that fair? Yeah, and, 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 and I want you to hear what Piper says with regard to this. I'm glad you made the argument before you hear what he's about to say, because what you're hearing him about to say now is is ultimately we do intuitively believe. We assume that it is wrong to hold people accountable for something they don't have any control over. Uh, and then, and then he, he attempts to make the argument that that's not what the Bible teaches. So listen. That's why they're so important. They're, they tend to be controlling. For example, I mean, the reason it shows up probably so often is that the assumption that one must have free will meaning self-determination, I would even say ultimate self-determination, one must have that in order to be held accountable for God is an assumption that I think millions of people bring to the Bible. Absolutely correct. I've already pointed that out, past episodes. It is an assumption, right? The only reason that you think God determining what somebody does and holding them responsible is a contradiction or a problem is because you have falsely assumed that in order to be held responsible, you need to be free from God. That's your false assumption. Which I don't share. I did once. And 
so did I, right? So here's Piper admitting he doesn't share it anymore because the Bible has caused him to change his intuitions. I assumed once that if I'm not decisively and ultimately the one, say, who at the moment of my conversion cast the deciding vote, I can't be held accountable. I'm a robot. Okay, so he's confessing what we were talking about earlier, that millions of people come to this assumption, including himself. And I, I can't help but wonder, why do millions of us naturally, if you will, intuitively come to this assumption, if not by the decree of God? And, uh, and then Leighton's going to throw in here his, uh, his usual jab of, well, why is this all happening? Well, it's happening because God, and that's the end of the story, right? And he's just going to, we covered that all last episode, ignoring the storyline level reasons. They're not ultimate reasons, but you can you can ask why did something happen? You can say because God, and then you can also say how did God do that, or how did God bring that about? And you can look at the connection on the storyline level and answer questions accordingly. In other words, God decreed for us millions of people to have this assumption for some reason, only to change some people by determinative means yep. to not believe that assumption. Yeah. Go figure. Go figure. Right, and did you... Did so what's the problem there? Do you, uh, you think that's stupid? Who cares? I don't care. I don't think God cares if you think it's stupid. Um, I don't see the point there. Yeah, God God's determined that people believe all sorts of false things and that some of them are corrected in time, some aren't, some, you know, especially as far as Christians are concerned, some undergo greater levels of sanctification in this life than others, and yet at the end of at the end of the day we're all gonna be hope you know, hopefully all in heaven, happily ever after, all on the same page. But that's you know, and, and God could snap his fingers and do it all that way now if he wanted to. But he's chosen to do things in particular ways. And I just have to once again flip it right back around and say, if you think that's absurd, why isn't it also absurd to say that God allowed things to happen that way? Why did God create people he knew would believe false things, right? And why did he allow them to believe false things? And and if you say, well, he did it for a purpose, well, that's my answer, right? Same answer. So we're both looking at the same reality, and we're both trying to factor in God's control of that and answer questions accordingly. You can't find that assumption in the Bible. Hmm. So that gets to your second question. And, it, and he's right. Uh, you cannot find the assumption that you must be free from God in order for him to hold you responsible anywhere in the Bible. And in fact, you find just the opposite. You find that you're never free from God. God upholds your existence at all moments, at all times, right? And still holds you responsible. God creates you and doesn't ask you first. God creates you knowing all the horrible things you're going to do. God knows if I create you, you will do these things and I will punish you for it. And God's the ultimate decider in whether or not that comes about, whether or not he creates you. And he doesn't ask you first. How's that fair? Right. All right. I, I, I've got to say this real quick. You, can you see, when you have humanistic standards of justice uh, and you're trying to have God play by certain rules, uh, you just make a mess out of everything. You can't find that assumption in the Bible. I also can't find the assumption that I exist in the Bible. What? Yeah. You know, I, I can't I, I can't find... Um, you can't find the assumption that you exist in the Bible. What, what are you talking about? God created you. That's why you exist. I'm not sure what he meant there. A, a lot of things in the Bible that are intuitively known to be right or wrong. Um, but... There, there are a lot of passages which seem to presume that assumption. I mean, every, every command, every time he acts, every time God acts like he's upset at us, yes. <laughs> it, seems, it seems intuitive. Like, why would you be upset at me for doing what you determined for me to do? Why would you be upset at me for 
doing something you determined me to do. That's like asking, why would you, why would God be upset at me for doing what he knew I would do if he created me? Same exact thing. God knew what I would do if he created me, creates me anyways, and then is mad at me when he didn't ask me if I wanted to be created. That was up to him. You see how ridiculous that is, right? That's the exact same thing. My existence is God's choice. He, he brought me into existence, and he did so knowing that I would do things that he didn't command me to do. And then he's going to be, quote-unquote, upset at me for doing the things that he knew I would do if he created me and could have created me differently. The same, same problem, just from a slightly different angle. So these are ultimate questions that all Christians are trying to address. I'm not, I'm not sure where it is, but, but, but he, he said a moment ago, and, and you see this often. Now, John Piper has been clear. I've got a quote for him in my Problem of Evil short video on the Problem of Evil um, on my website, the short videos playlist. But I've got a quote from him where he talks about God determines um, every, you know, the song the bird sings, the, every blade of grass. I mean, it's the movement of every molecule. God determines everything, right? That's that. And, and like he says, there's no free will. But there he says, he, he says. Yeah, and I've said that consistently. Um, I would ask these guys, uh, how can God uphold the existence of every molecule that he's created and not be in control of it? How does that work? Can you explain that to me? Can you explain that to me? How God cannot be in control of his own power, the way in which he's sustaining things moment by moment? I, I don't get it. Maybe you can help me understand it. He, he, uh, he focuses it down to the point of your conversion. Which, of course, divine determinists, Calvinists, are, do think that God is the determining factor in your salvation. It's just that that's not to say God is also on Calvinism, or at least on John Piper's brain of Calvinism, the determiner of everything that happens. And, and you know, I'm actually kind of glad that he points this, this out, uh, because if you notice something about this podcast, um, I, have not folk, I have not done the typical Calvinist stuff. Okay, I think everybody can recognize that where a lot of Calvinists, they limit the entire discussion of free will and God's control to just salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. Salvation is like the most important thing we could talk about, right? That's, that's great. But they try to limit it to just that and then sort of paint this picture that that's the only sense in which we don't have free will, and that's the only sense in which God is exerting control, and everything else that's occurring is just sort of irrelevant and up for grabs. And I completely disagree with that line of going about things, so to speak. I want to start with the foundation that all things are under the control of God. And then along the way, I'll come to understand that that includes salvation, right? I, I think that's a better way to go about doing it. I think, because when you go the salvation route, when you start there, you're sort of just starting with man and what's important to man. I want to start with God and what's important to God, right? And then salvation comes about at a, at a particular point as well. But when I start with God being the creator, God being the sustainer, then everything else is going to be seen in that particular light, which would include salvation. So I, I'm, I'm glad he pointed that out because that is the proper way to go about it, in my opinion. That yeah. is an important thing. Now, with his intuition about uh, justice or about God punishing people for what he determines that they will do. Isn't that what he said he has an intuition about? Uh, you know, that, yeah, you have that intuition. That's the thing I'm saying. If someone says they don't have that intuition, I just don't believe them. Okay. Again, I've already admitted it. Irrelevant. Irrelevant. But I think this is a good point to, to drive up another uh, argument here and point out, going back to this idea of luck, right? Luck. 
he just said, well, if you don't, if you don't, if you say you don't have this intuition that I have, then I just don't believe you. I think the vast majority of humanity throughout history has had the intuition of luck or karma or fortune, right? I think it's pretty culturally across the board. You could argue that everybody intuitively thinks that there's this thing called luck, right? And I could sit here and say, well, if you don't, if you don't admit that you started off believing in this thing called luck, then I just don't believe you. And that might be true. But I can build this idea of luck and this intuition about luck into a mirror of an argument that they've been putting forth. I can sit here and say, well, since we have this intuition about luck, luck is real, right? There is such a thing as randomness, and there is such a thing as this power called luck, good luck, bad luck. And the burden is on you, since we all have this intuition, the burden is, the burden is on you to prove otherwise, right? Now, how are you going to prove me wrong? How are you going to demonstrate that luck is not actually a real thing? You could do it scientifically, I would argue, but let's put that off to the side and keep this in the uh, the biblical realm. You would have to go to the Bible, right? And you would have to show that the Bible teaches that there is no such thing as luck. With verses like the verse in Proverbs, the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision is of the Lord. The things that we think are random are not in fact random. But notice, you've gone to the Bible to disprove my intuition, an intuition that I think you would have to admit you had. I would have to ask Leighton Flowers and Braxton here, before you were Christians... Did the idea of luck ever cross your mind? Did you ever consider it? Or maybe even will you admit that you believed it at a, at a particular point or for a particular per, particular period of time? I'll admit that I did, right? And yet, when the Bible comes along and disproves my intuition, I have to alter my view, don't I? But here's my point, right? You're going to come at me and try to disprove my intuition and everybody else's intuition of luck with the Bible. But if I refuse to let go of my very strong, how could anybody possibly deny it, intuition of luck? If I refuse to let go of that, then I can just alter or get around or I interpret, reinterpret verses in light of my, my lens and, and do what, what I believe you're doing with free will and all the verses that I bring against you. I can just say that every instance in scripture where God appears to be in control of something is nothing more than God getting lucky, being at the right place at the right time, and having the coincidences of life work in his favor. Doesn't matter where you point in the Bible to try to demonstrate that luck's not a real thing, that God actually is in control of something or determining something. I can just say, well, that's just an example of God getting lucky. God is the luckiest dude in existence. And nothing in the Bible can prove me wrong because I'm simply going to modify all of those very clear verses that show God in control to fit my stubborn intuition of luck. Now, that was all a hypothetical, maybe even slightly sarcastic point, but I think you guys all see the point. It's a mere argument and a mere situation to what these guys are doing with free will. We all intuit that we have free will, and the burden of proof is on you to disprove me. And yet, when you come against me with scriptures which appear to disprove me, like God determining what Pharaoh does and judging him, or God forming all our days for us and writing them in his book, or God working all things after the counsel of his will— or the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, he directs wherever he pleases, or on and on and on and on and on. All these verses that I would try to come and disprove your intuition of free will, you're just going to find a way to get around those verses and hold on to your stubborn intuition of free will. And as I've always said, again, luck, the idea, the whole concept of luck at the end of the day is just a very lazy filler that people use to fill in the gaps of their knowledge, the gaps of their understanding. They take that syringe of luck 
and they inject it into all the places that they don't understand about what is going on around them and the things that are happening around them. Just like most of the people, unfortunately, <laughs> who enter a casino. There's no such thing as randomness. Nothing that is going on around them is actually random. And yet, since they don't want to think about it and consider it and figure it out, they just lazily say, oh, I must be unlucky, or I must be lucky today, or that guy's lucky, or bad karma, good karma. It is just lazy filler, right? And I think free will is just that. We can all start off thinking we have free will, right? When we live life and we think thoughts and we make choices, it is so a part of who and what we are that it just happens, right? And we don't put much thought into it. We don't really think about why did I make that choice? Why did I think that thought? Why did I feel what I felt? We rarely stop to answer these questions. And, it, and so instead of actually putting out the effort and the thought in, in, into trying to understand how these things relate and the coherent reality of causes and effects that we are all a part of, we just lazily want to say, well, I've got free will. That's why I did what I did. And it's just another lazy filler, just like the idea of luck. That, that you don't have the intuition that it is unjust to uh, to create someone determining that they will rape and murder, command them not to rape and murder, determine they do rape and murder, and then hold them accountable for doing what you told them not to do, but determined that they would do. If you if you say that that makes sense to you, that that is not that there's not an intuition that's wrong. I just don't believe you. That's fine, and I want you to explain how that is not, from your view, equally applicable. You believe that God created people knowing what they would do, and he could have not created them. He could have created them differently so that they would have been doing different things. But God creates people knowing exactly what they will do, and it's not up to them if they're created. It's up to God. And then he punishes them for what was ultimately not up to them, right? Ultimately, I know you think free will exists, and you think you're ultimately, but again, ultimately, God is in control of whether or not you exist, and God is in control of the results of your existence, period, okay? There's, there's no way around that. You can appeal to mystery all day long. You're not going to escape the fact that God is in control of whether or not you exist, and therefore by creating you is determining precisely what he knows will result from your creation, such as what you do. So, and, you're not, and it's not up to you. It's up to God. So God is punishing you for things that are ultimately up to him, even in your view. How do you, how do you address that? I want an answer. Again, you can say something like, yeah, but our intuitions can be wrong, and I'm going to give you biblical data that shows that your intuition about that is wrong. And that should be top priority for a Christian, right? Just as I did with the case of Pharaoh. Yeah, our intuitions can be wrong. Maybe not totally wrong, but just need to be modified, right? So that, yeah, we can't determine what other people do because we don't have a right to determine what they do because we don't have a right over them. We didn't create them. We don't uphold them. So I can't determine what someone else does and hold them responsible. Okay. I don't see anything in the Bible that would contradict that. But I do see something in the Bible that contradicts the intuition that God, your creator and your sustainer, cannot determine what you do and also hold you responsible. And the case of Pharaoh is a prime example. Fair enough. And good luck with that, because I don't think you can. Oh, man. Again, you got Pharaoh, right? God commands him to let the people go. Then he hardens his heart so that he won't. Then he destroys him for not doing what he commanded him to do. You have Romans 9. That talks about that exact same account and then concludes, why does God still find fault for who resists his will? Who are your men? Answer back to God. Uh, I don't know. Again, if that can't teach Calvinism, nothing could. Nothing could. These guys will find a way to convince themselves out of any particular, any any text. If, if those things cannot prove or falsify, in this case, 
their intuitions that God can't determine what you do and hold you responsible. But but fair enough. But if you tell me you don't have, have that intuition, I'm just I'm not buying it. But what I wanted to point out there was the, the, the shift that goes back and forth sometimes between speaking as though what's determined is your salvation without you know making it clear that everything, including your salvation, is determined. A good point, and it's one I agree with. And 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 this this logically flows from what I said earlier. You can't have God determining some things without determining all things. Okay? And the free will side says this constantly. Well, God determines some things. But he, he doesn't determine all things. We determine some things. Guys, anytime you're going to admit that God is introducing an, a determinative action into creation at any point in creation, right? I mean, let's pretend we can ignore the first act to create. Anywhere along the way, when you introduce an action of God, God foreknows the results of his own actions. God foreknows that by doing this particular thing, this is what will result. So God can't take any action without determining the entire future of the result of that action, right? This is what we mean when we say that if God's going to control even one thing, he has to control all things. If God takes one action in regards to your life, any action that God took, God knew the results of his action all the way through into the future. God knew exactly what not just that action would result in you doing, but the way your t entire future would result in as well, right? So as soon as you admit God takes an action, everything after that point was determined by God when he took that action. And you can't escape this. You don't get to introduce, again, free will has to tear reality apart. It has to completely rip the, the flow of reality apart into these little chunks and pretend that they can exist in and of themselves so that God can determine one thing about your life but not determine everything else about your life that follows from that. And it's just completely illogical. Yeah, I, I was just putting in uh, to the bottom here uh, this quote from John Calvin, all future things being uncertain to us, we hold them in suspense as though they might happen either one way or another. Uh, and the reason I put that is because, and he even has another quote, um, I, I didn't have time to enter this one in, but he goes on to say, hence, as to future time, because the issue of all things is hidden from us, each ought to do, do so apply himself to his office as though nothing were determined about any part. In other words, believe determinism, but you have to live as if you're not determined. You have to live as if it's in suspense and it could happen either way. In other words, live intuitively what you believe to be right, but believe differently than what you intuitively believe. Yeah, and I don't think that's what Calvin meant by that at all. I think Calvin's point was very simple. We don't know the future, and we're not supposed to guess at it, right? Um, we covered this pretty extensively in our episode on Are Calvinist Fatalists. Um, we can understand that the future's fixed, just like you do, by the way. You believe the future's fixed, and yet does that affect the way you live your life in the sense of your attitude, Right. Do you just say, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do tomorrow, and God knows it, and I can't do other than what God knows I'm going to do, so I guess I'll just not try, right? You don't do that, do you, right? So does that mean that you're living inconsistent, inconsistently with what you believe, right? Unless you want to come out and say you can falsify God's knowledge with your free will and do something other than he knew you would do tomorrow, which, you know, you can't do that, obviously, so this whole point of, well, the future's fixed, both sides have the future being fixed, guys. How many times do I have to point this out, right? Unless you're an open theist who believes the future hasn't happened yet, therefore can't be known, you are stuck with the future being fixed, period, okay? And you can't do other than what you're going to do tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or not. 
So I just have to ask, what would it, you know, according to these these guys, what would it mean for me as a determinist to actually live like a determinist? What would that look like? I just want to know what that would look like, given the fact that I don't know the future, right? If I did know the future, if I, if I knew, for example, that I was going to die tomorrow at a particular point in time, then yeah, that would affect my life, right? That knowledge, I could then live, you know, knowing that knowledge. But if I don't know the future, but I do know the future's fixed based upon what comes before it, and there's a connection there, then you'll notice that I'm therefore going to live my life with the confidence and the assurance that my actions actually do matter, right? See, this is, it's very common for people to assume, falsely assume, a fatalistic attitude in light of the idea of all things being determined. People assume a fatalistic attitude and they conclude that that's the attitude I should be living and having if, that's, if I believed in determinism. But you got to remember something. For me, as a determinist, to be a determinist means to understand that my actions do in fact matter, right? I don't have this woe is me, why should I even try attitude because I don't know what the future is. But I do know that the future contains and includes my actions. So instead of having a fatalistic attitude and a negative attitude, I have a positive attitude knowing that when I take actions, they matter, right? So just take the idea of death, for example, right? As a determinist, I know that I'm going to die one day and that my death is going to happen for a particular reason. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know when, right? And I don't know why in terms of the cause of my death, but I do know that I will die. So given the fact that I don't know the exact details of those things, I don't know the future, right? I don't know whether it's going to be a heart attack, for example, but I do know that it's possible to die of a heart attack, right? And I do know, I do know that since as a determinist, I believe heart attacks happen for a reason. So maybe I should, remember this is coming down to mindset and what we should, the way we should live. Maybe I should eat healthy. Maybe I should exercise. Maybe I should take care of my health so that I don't die of a heart attack. You see? You see the difference in mindset there? You see how a determinist can live just fine, just like just like everybody else? Because I recognize that things happen, happen for reasons, right? So we, we can talk about all sorts of different possible ways to die, that I could die, and yet since I don't know the future, the best I can do is to live safely and responsibly because I know that irresponsibility can result in my death, right? Because my actions are connected to the future. So this all boils back to, again, the difference between fatalism and the mindset of fatalism and d determinism, which includes all things. Determinists recognize that God has not merely determined that some things will happen and left the rest up for grabs so that you can have this negative attitude of, well, woe is me and why should I try? God has also determined how and why things happen, which can include and does include our actions. So we live our lives based upon, for example, revealed commands of God, uh, knowing that God is using those things to bring about various aspects of our future. This all comes down to mindset. And so I just, you know, summarize and ask once again, ask these guys, what would, according to you, what would it look like for me to live as a determinist? And I can guarantee you their answer is going to be the fatalistic attitude answer that, well, if determinism was true, I should have this woe is me, why should I even try, nothing matters type of attitude. And I'm saying that as a determinist, it's just the opposite. A woe is me attitude looks at some things as determined, but considers my own actions not part of the picture. That's not what determinism teaches. Determinism teaches that everything happens for a reason and that my actions play a part. Is, is right, that you, know, you hear as well? 
the 21st century atheist, late atheist, uh, Christopher Hitchens said it much more succinctly than John Calvin did. He said, I, of course I have free will. I'm forced to, I can't help it. You know, <laughs> I'm determined to have free will in other words. And the point was intentionally tongue in cheek. He doesn't believe you have free will, but he's forced to act as though he has free will. Right. That's the right. And if, if Christopher Hitchens didn't understand that, you know, all things can be determined and force has to do with whether or not you're being forced against your wanting to do something. Uh, just because you're determined, you, you know, if all things are determined, then even what you want to do is determined, right? So th there's no force in the simple, the simple concept of you being determined to do something. There's no force at all. That's the point that Calvin's making, and it's, of course, the only way you can live your life. And that's a problem when we do worldview analysis. But they haven't really explained how I'm supposed to live my life as a determinist. I don't understand what that what that means. So, how does someone live their life if they if they don't believe they have free will? According to these guys, they they don't really say. Your a good worldview is one that is livable, which means every day you yeah. live as though the statements of your worldview are true. Well, you and and I just laid that out. I live as though my actions have a determinative effect on the future. Right. I I go forward with, in life in confidence, knowing that, and given the fact that I don't know the future, I can only make educated guesses. And, you know, these types of things and live my life the best I can. Right. Uh, but again, I make I'm making decisions along the way, knowing that my decisions are have determinative effects on my future, like my health or 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 things like this. You, when you're a, when you're a determinist, you have to live as though you're free, even though you're not now uh, in their defense. Compatibilists come back, come back and say, no, I can live as though I do whatever I want to do. Yeah, because determinism and doing what you want are not mutually exclusive things. They they. They can absolutely coexist. Yes, but you fu you do function and you hold other people responsible and you feel responsible for the things that you do as if you could have done anything else. Hypothetically is the only sense in which you could have done otherwise. You had the hypothetical means at your disposal to have done otherwise, not ultimately. Already gone over this. And that's, that strikes at the livability of Calvinism. Which, which is what this, uh, thank you, Jesus, uh, is the name of his moniker there. So he says, uh, so then Calvinism is useless. Um, and that kind of gets to the point, is it's not practically tenable. And again, they're not really saying, what, what would it look like for me to live as a determinist? Can you explain that and put words to it? Because it, it just doesn't make any sense. If, if I believe I'm going to do what I'm going to do tomorrow and I can't do other than what I'm going to do tomorrow, how is that supposed to affect my thought process or what I'm going to do tomorrow, right? I mean... Everybody believes that, who, who's not an open theist, right? And yet they're still living life just fine, right? So believing that things are fixed and that you can't ultimately do other than what you're going to do is not, it's, it's not, it shouldn't, and it doesn't, in the vast majority of cases, introduce this negative fatalistic mindset in people's lives, and it doesn't cause them to live their life in some sort of absurd way. So it's not, it's not really serving a practical purpose, at least theistic determinism isn't, as far as I can tell, because you're ultimately telling people um, uh, what, what you intuitively believe is true about your choices isn't really true about your choices, but knowing that is not really helpful to you. And, it, and it's actually harmful, as we've demonstrated in other episodes, for some people. It may not be harmful for everybody, but because some people are able to have the cognitive dissonance to be able to live as if free will is true while believing it's not. But no, and again... It, we're not living in a contradiction. I'm not living as though free will is true when it's not. And the fact that some people might wrongly, even on my side, might falsely have a fatalistic conclusion from the idea of all things being determined and take a woe is me, why, why bother trying attitude. Um, that's not the fault of the worldview itself. I mean, all worldviews can have a people who misunderstand it and misuse it and abuse it, right? Is that the fault of the worldview? Does that make the worldview false? No, it doesn't. That's their fault for not properly 
thinking about and studying and, and acknowledging what the worldview is putting, putting forth. But some people aren't able to live that way. Some people actually become fatalistic in their behavior. Fatalistic. There you go. Saw it coming. Behaviors and actions and, and even maybe even atheistic uh, in their actions, as we've heard with Derek Webb and Megan Phelps and others who... And, and again, guys, I, I really think that the... Uh, I can't remember episode seven or eight on, on fatalism that we did. I think it was seven. Very, very good. You got to go check that out to see the difference in a fatalistic mindset and a deterministic mindset and how one is ignoring your role in the all things that are determined. It's, it's very important. And, and, and so I just really encourage people to go check that episode out. Uh, Calvinism had a very negative effect on them. My own testimony too. With and That's their fault. Okay. Calvinism had a negative effect on them. That's a minority case and it's their fault because they didn't think things through properly. My sinful behaviors uh, and, and punning to the decree of God as the reasons for my sinful desires and behaviors, that, that was a negative impact that it had on my healing and for me personally. And so, um, and you know, of course he's going to emotionalize this into people's sinful behaviors. I think it's, it's very questionable and interesting how a Christian can look at the idea of God having determined your sinful behaviors and, and it has some sort of negative effect on, on your life or your, 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 your worldview. So when we look back and we think, if God determined that I do the, did those things, mustn't there have been a purpose in it? And if so, what was God's purpose? And most of the time we can see the purpose, right? We all make mistakes and we mess up, and yet we can see the, the way in which God works that um, in our lives. And we can see the, 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 the purposes God had in those things. So just because someone comes to a bunch of false conclusions based on the, the worldview they're trying to understand, and that happens to result in some sort of negative effect on their life, um, it's not the fault of the worldview. It's the fault of them and their misunderstanding of what's going on. Okay, Because nothing in Calvinism or in theological determinism ever says that since God's determined what you do, you're, you're not responsible. In fact, the whole point here is we say just the opposite. God determines what you do and holds you responsible. And we give the scripture to prove it. You, you can't you can't argue with the fact that that happens, uh, it, because it's happened. Yeah, it's happened. There are always um, people who falsely understand a worldview that they're that they're trying to adhere to, and it, this goes both ways, right? That's like me saying that. Well, your view can result in some people having this attitude that they save themselves, right? Total. You you would say that that's a total um, false assumption. And false conclusion of your position. You're not saying that people save themselves. And yet, people might, in, in the in this extreme minority, come away from your position thinking that, right? So, did, is that somehow an argument against, against your position? And it, it, is it right for me to come along and say, well, since people can end up thinking that, that that's the way that you should be living, if you were to be living consistently with your view? You know, you know what I'm trying to say? It just, you can't go very far with this. Um, and therefore, the only explanation for, for that is that God's determined for that to happen. And, and if Calvinism is true... For a purpose, God has determined that it happened, yes. Uh, and what seems more intuitive to me is that Calvinism is just false. And therefore, uh, the, the, the bad behavior is coming from a false belief, not the, not the actual truth. Yeah, and, um, and, and once again, Leighton likes to throw this, the jabs out of, well, just God determined it, God determined it, God determined it. It doesn't matter if you're a Calvinist or not, you have God determining all things, right? I don't know how many times I have to point this out. Reactive permission and allowance is just as determinative as active planning and purposing, because God is the ultimate being. 
So if you can get a free will proponent to admit that any action that you take could have been stopped by God, and yet God chose to allow it, then God chose something he disagreed with earlier, right? God choosing your choices. God is choosing, even in a free will view, God is choosing which choice he will allow you to make. God is choosing your choices. He's choosing you will do this, and you won't do that. All the way down the line, your entire life, free will is once again an illusion. But most of the time, these guys don't recognize these problems in their worldview. And, and it's important to state here, at least for me, and I think this is true of you, Leighton, is even though, even though I have this deep intuition that I have free will and that what the Calvinist is describing strikes against justice and strikes against what I understand about God's nature, if Scripture, if I was convinced that Scripture demonstrated what the Calvinist is saying, I would, I would accept it. That's a very noble thing to say. I'm glad you would say that. I would hope you would mean it. The problem is, as I've already pointed out with just a couple examples in this episode, it doesn't matter what the Bible says most of the time. By the Bible can put forth the idea of various aspects of Calvinism word for word, and yet these, these guys are still going to find a way around it. He's, he said earlier, it's absurd for God to command somebody to do something or not do something, and then determine that they disobey the command, and then punish them for disobeying the command and doing what they determined God determined them to do. And we point out Pharaoh, where God commands Pharaoh, let the people go, but then hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let the people go, and then destroys him for not obeying the command that God determined he wouldn't obey. So you can point his problems out right in Scripture, and yet I can guarantee you they'll find a way around it. They'll find some way to justify in their minds that that's not really what it's saying. Because I'm a, I believe in biblical authority. It's just that I don't think the Bible teaches that. So if you, be, if you believe in biblical authority, then you need to bring your intuitions in line with the Bible, right? Once again, everybody for the vast majority of history thought the earth was flat, right? Everybody thought that. And yet when the facts come along, people change their views. And now everybody knows it's not. Right? Even if you could argue that, that people would still think it, they're born thinking that the earth is flat, they learn very quickly that it's not, and they have to change that intuition. The same thing goes for biblical truth, biblical understanding. And that the Bible doesn't teach that in my estimation and yours fits very well with the fact that it really looks like God built me to think about it this way. And this argument is, is in my opinion, very bad and very dangerous. Okay, Because if, once again, anything that is a false belief is sinful, not being offensive. They think we're believing false things, we would be in sin. We think they're believing false things, they're being sin. Anything that does not line up with the truth of God, in terms of a belief, is a sinful belief, right? So if if you're going to use this, God just built me this way, right, justification for your false beliefs, you, you got to be real careful with that, right? Because all, you know, all sinners, since the beginning of time, have been using that excuse for their sin. Well, God just... This is the way it is. God built me this way, right? And we all know what topics I'm talking about, but you just have to be real careful with this, right? The fact that you're born thinking a particular thing is not, you know, yeah, God created you as a fall as a fallen sinner, unfortunately, for us. God created us this way after the likeness of Adam. And and I'm just saying you got to be careful um, when you go down this road of, well, God built me to think this way. Yeah, well said. Uh, I want to continue with the clip here and let him have full hearing on this portion at least. Really serious humility, because you might be wrong and you have to come to terms with your error yep. or your fallibility. And it takes, I think, significant give and take with 
other people who see things differently from you. I remember when I was in college and um, your, some of your writings actually led me to question a number of my assumptions. And the method that I settled upon, I don't know why, Providence, probably. Uh, for no, probably. To, no, probably. Okay, so I, I wanted to get that in there, at least that portion of it, because notice, notice he even kind of says, well, I, I, why I came to this conclusion, well, Providence, maybe. And that he says, no, probably. It, it, it definitely happened that way. And th this comes to the point that I always make, that the reason people adopt determinism, i.e. Calvinism, on Calvinism is because God in his providence has caused them to. Ultimately, yes, of course. But again, you can't forget the how. Right, you can't forget the way it's playing out. Why? How? In what way has God caused people to believe various things, including determinism? Right, and that includes debate, study, the Bible, all these things. Thus, the other must be true that Braxton and Hunter and Leighton Flowers and millions of millions of other Christians throughout human history have rejected Calvinistic determinism because God has so decreed it. Yeah, you can't get around that fact. There's there's no reason to try to get around it, right? And I just think it's funny how he says millions of people, right, have rejected the the determinism, the Calvinistic determinism, right? As if, you know, once again, everybody just starts off with this intuition of free will, and they've, you know, millions of people throughout history have consciously studied and thought through the issues of determinism and said and, and come to the conclusions that these guys have and rejected it. That's that's not what's going on when you when you if you're going to be fair about what's actually going on in reality, right? The vast majority of people have just lazily assumed free will, intuitively, and, and w without ever even studying or considering the idea of determinism, right? And, and it's my contention, and one of the reasons I'm doing this podcast, and I, the reason I argue with people and try to point these things out, is, is that it's my contention that just as the vast majority of people thought the world was flat, and when people presented evidence to them that it's not flat, most people come around and realize it's not flat, I also think that the vast majority of people, yes, will believe they have free will until somebody comes along and shows them all the reasons that they don't, right? All the reality-based, determinative, scientifically demonstrable, and biblically demonstrable reasons why you don't have this thing called free will that you thought you had. And, and I, I pause to make another point here, um, just to point out, well, I, I'd reject Calvinism and God determined me to reject it. So just, there you go. Well, well, that's what he's determined right now, right? You can always look at the present and look backwards in the past and say, yeah, God determined all that stuff. But once again, we don't know the future. So just because God has determined that you reject Calvinism right now doesn't mean that God hasn't determined that you will change your mind in the future. And if God has determined that you change your mind in the future, then he's also determined the way in which and the reasons why you will change your mind in the future which can include your own self-study or debates and interactions like this. And I think that's a huge blight on the Calvinistic worldview. Whether they accept it or believe it or not, that seems to be one of the largest issues and, and problems with holding to Calvinism is why are there so few Christians, relatively speaking, who become Calvinistic in the deterministic sense of the word like John Piper, if it's true, except that for whatever reason, God decrees most of his children not to believe in something that he sees as a vital truth of a, a core doctrine of Christianity. You can play the why did God determine things to be this way game all day long. And I could play the why did God allow things to happen this way game all day long coming back your way. It's really not going to get any, anybody anywhere. And I, I don't see the weight that they see in this point. I just don't see the weight in it, right? Yes. We can look at the past and see what God has determined. We can look at the present and see what God has determined. We don't know what God has determined in the future. Right? We don't know. 
I don't know how they deal with that. What do you think? No, I agree 100%. And what's um, sad- I don't understand what's there to deal with. Um, God is not... God could snap his fingers and perfect everybody right now if he wanted to, right? He could supernaturally upload perfect knowledge into everybody's brain if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He's not chosen to do it that way. He's chosen to have us undergo a process of sanctification, right? Nobody is in this life going to be brought to perfect understanding of the truth of God, right? Or at least very few. And I just don't understand how that's a problem. The assumption seems to be, once again, you're assuming that, well, if I were God, I wouldn't have done it that way. But but nobody cares. You're not God, right? Who, who cares the way you would have done it if you were God? And I think that that mindset is what a lot of people have. They look out in the world and they see things happening. And if they were God, they wouldn't have done it that way, right? So And then they conclude, therefore, that God must not be doing it that way. And it's just a false conclusion. I mean, atheists ask these types of things of Christians all the time, right? Why does God allow people to starve to death? That's not, that's not a question against just Calvinists. That's a question against all Christians. Even you believe that God is allowing people, quote-unquote allowing, people to starve to death, or get sick, or get cancer, or, you know, why doesn't God heal amputees, right? It's wrong to look out in the world and think, if I were God, I'd be doing things differently. Therefore, if God isn't doing the things the way I would do them, he must not be doing them at all. That is a a very wrong way of looking at the world. Sad about that is when I've seen, and, and you've had people on your show like this, I've got friends who have done this who are Calvinists but who will go on an atheist YouTube channel or something uh, or in private conversation. And the atheist says, well, look, if you're a Calvinist, um, then uh, isn't the reason that I'm not a Christian right now and that I don't believe a thing you're saying, isn't it because God just hasn't elected me and and, uh, irresistibly graced me and and all those sorts of things? And the Calvinist has to answer, well, yeah. Not not quite, not exactly the way that was worded. We can say that as of right now, God has determined that you will be rejecting his truth. Right, but he mentioned election and everything. We don't know who's elect and who's not, right? Prior to them being saved. Right? We can look at saved people and understand that they must have been elect. But we can't look at an atheist who's not saved and determine whether or not they're elect. Right? So this is just I know he probably if he could have worded it differently, I know what he's getting at here, but again, I'm not seeing the point. The point is we don't know the future, and just because God has determined something right now doesn't mean he hasn't determined something else in the future. But if he has determined a change in the future, he's also determined why the change is there. And it just might be that a Calvinist talking to an atheist might be the, the means by which God uses to save that particular atheist. And again, these guys talk about this as if this is not a, cre- a question for any Christian, right? Just pretend Calvinism doesn't exist and you believe, you believe in free will. An atheist asks you if God created me knowing that I would never believe in him, then I can't actually ultimately believe in him, can I? What's your answer to that question, right? You have to admit, yeah, if God knows you'll never accept him, then you can't actually ultimately accept him. But you would very quickly make the qualifiers that I have repeatedly made. Number one, you don't know the future. And so you can't just make presumptions about the future that since you're not believing right now, that means you won't be believing in the future. Can't make those presumptions because you don't know the future. And you'd also have to differentiate, as I have repeatedly done, between the ultimate sense of being able to do otherwise, that no, you can't falsify the foreknowledge of God, but you still talk about the hypothetical sense. But I am just continually blown away that people don't that people think that these ultimate questions are only for some reason applicable to the Calvinist position. And the Calvin and then the, the atheist will say, Well then why why are you even talking to me about this? And that's a fatalistic attitude, right? Why bother, why try? And the Calvinist will rightly say, 
um, from their perspective. Well, it, it could be that by my sharing the gospel with you right now, that that will be the means that God uses to irresistibly grace you and, and all those sorts of things. Absolutely correct. And you'll notice Braxton here knows the answer. He knows the Calvinist answer. But as you're going to see here, he's not going to respond to it or show why it is not a valid answer. But if it doesn't happen, if in the end of the day the atheist just says, well, I, I don't think I'm elect, I'm not experiencing that, I don't have any inclination to believe, I mean, that's, that's that. That, that. Yeah, God also determines that his truth will harden people, right? God's truth does not return, God's word does not return void. God's word, God's truth being preached, always accomplishes the purpose it's set out to accomplish, right? This is, this is a minor side note, but Calvinists can boldly say that when his truth is preached, when the gospel is preached, that God's purpose is, is being accomplished both in people accepting it and being saved and in rejecting it and being hardened. God can use his truth and his word to further harden people, right? Do I need to give biblical examples of that? I don't think so. We all know them. So I would flip this back on the, on the free will side, though, and say if the only thing that you think, if the only purpose that you think God has in the preaching of the gospel is that, people, that he hopes people be saved, then the vast majority of the time, God's word, the, the purpose God has in his, in his preaching, fails, right? It's wasted. It's not accomplishing what he set out for it to accomplish, okay? But, but in, if Calvinism is true, if God's determined all things, then he has determined both that the gospel will save and that it will harden, right? So it doesn't matter um, which outcome there is, right? The point is that God had a purpose in both outcomes. So this, this argument he's saying, well, well, if that doesn't happen, that's that. Well, that's that for a reason, right? Maybe God, maybe that person was not elect. Maybe God did not decide to show mercy to that person and instead has decided to harden them in their sin and rebellion. Nobody likes to talk about that. I'm not going to pretend I like to talk about that, but my feelings are not the determiner of what is right or what is true or false. Well, and I can understand how that's not the perfect excuse in the world. Being born without the capacity to believe seems like the perfect excuse for not believing. Being born without the capacity to believe. Um, we covered that in our episode on human responsibility. There's a difference between moral ability and natural faculty ability, or I would say the word capacity, right? Everybody has the ability to believe in things. Every person who has ever existed could have believed in God if they had wanted to. But because of their sinful hearts, because of their love for themselves, because of their hatred of God, they didn't want to and will never want to unless God changes their heart. So the point isn't that people can't believe in in God, period, right? The point is that people can't believe in God because they don't want to, right? It's a, it's a moral disposition problem. The disposition of God, as it says in Romans 8, is one of enmity. And as a result, they cannot, is what it says, submit to God's law. So does that mean that they don't have the capacity to? No, because that's where this idea of he's calling this as an excuse there is no excuse because the capacity is always there, right? If people wanted to, they could obey God's commands. If people wanted to, they could love God. If people wanted to, they could uh, accept the gospel. If they wanted to is the, is the qualifier, and it's of a moral nature. In the same way Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him, it's not that they couldn't speak, period. It's that they couldn't speak peaceably to him because they hated him. They didn't want to speak peaceably to him. So that is where the idea of responsibility lies, and that is why they are without excuse, because the hypothetical means were there at their disposal to have spoken peaceably. The same thing goes for this idea right here. Well, and I can understand how that's not the perfect excuse in the world. Being born without the capacity to believe 
seems like the perfect excuse for not believing. Everybody has the capacity to believe in God if they wanted to. But everybody's born loving themselves and hating God, and therefore morally unable to properly exercise their faculty of faith. Okay? And until God changes their hearts so that they properly use the faculty of faith they've always had, they will continue to reject God and love themselves. Okay? Very simple. And again, I would ask these guys, they believe that God creates people knowing that all they'll ever do is hate him and go to hell. Right? God could create him differently or not at all, but God willingly chooses to create people he knows will only ever hate him and end up in hell. So can those people whom God creates actually love him? And if so, in what sense? You can't say in the ultimate sense. You can't say in the sense that would falsify the foreknowledge of God, right? So in the ultimate sense, they can't do anything other than hate God. So why don't they also have the excuse? The excuse you just mentioned here. Why isn't that an excuse? God, you created me in such a way that I would only ever hate you and end up in hell. And you didn't ask me if I wanted to be created. So it's your fault, God. Why don't they have that excuse? And your answer to that question is going to be along the same lines as my answer. And that answer is that the responsibility is based upon the moral category of ability. Yeah, I, I can't. Matter of fact, if I tried to think of a better excuse, in other words, try to imagine with me a better excuse than what the Calvinistic system offers. I can think of the same excuse. God created me knowing all I would ever do with my free will is hate him and go to hell. And he could have created me differently so that I would have been using my free will to love him. But God chose to create me in, this, in such a way that I would only ever hate him and go to hell. And he didn't ask me if I wanted to be created. So it's God's fault. Why is this, doesn't the same excuse apply to your free will worldview? To unbelievers. I can't think of a better excuse than I do not have as a human being the capacity to believe the gospel. I, do, I don't have that capacity. You do not have the moral ability to believe the gospel because you don't want to, right? Everybody is born in sin, sinful hearts. They love themselves. They hate God. It's what the Bible teaches. We can argue that later. I'm just talking about this is the, the point of Calvinism. Everybody could believe the gospel if they wanted to. They just don't want to. And that's why they're responsible. Um, is there a better excuse? I mean, I'm asking you, Braxton. I'm just, I didn't prepare you for this. I'm thinking, can you think? Uh, like, if you had to come up with a better excuse that was rational, that was real, can you think of a better excuse in the world than I was born without the capacity to believe the gospel for your reason for not believing the gospel? And since he's focusing on the gospel here and the idea of excuses, what about the billions of people who lived and died never having heard the gospel or the chance to hear the gospel? Will they have an excuse? I think if they were going to be consistent with everything they're going along with here, they'd have to say yes. I guess maybe in their view, I don't know, maybe in their view, the people who don't hear the gospel get a free pass, right? Because they would have an excuse, right? Since you're the one trying to tie the ultimate determinations of God into the storyline level responsibility of man and give man excuses, will the people who have never heard the gospel be able to blame God for not, quote-unquote, giving them the chance because, because of the way in which God created them, right? God created them in such a way and in such a place and in such a time that he knew they'd never hear the gospel and that they would perish, certainly, he knew it. So why don't they have an excuse? And again, I, maybe they would actually say that they do have an excuse. It would be completely unbiblical, right? But it would be consistent with their claims. Right here about man having excuses in light of God's control of these situations. No, and, and of course, this gets back to the same old issue that I'm saying is intuitively obvious. The Calvinists, like John Piper apparently, 
have to walk away from, and that is that in passages like um, Romans chapter 1, verse 20, where it says the invisible things of God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that they are without excuse. He's talking about idolaters there, but he's talking about people who don't accept the truth about one creator God. And why don't they accept that truth? They, they, don't, they don't accept that truth because they love themselves, right? They, they, hate the, they hate the things of God. They don't want to accept the truth, right? And it can be said that they are unable to do it. They can, it can be categorized as a moral inability. Just as someone might say, I can never murder my child, right? What do they mean by that? They don't mean that they can't actually physically do it. They have 101 million different ways that they could murder their child, technically speaking, right? They, they have those means at their disposal. The point is that because of the love that they have for their child, they can go so far as to say that they can't murder their child. It's a moral ability that we're talking about. Now, whatever you want to say about Christianity specifically there, he's saying that if you don't recognize there's one maker God who made everything because of looking around at creation, you don't have an excuse for that. But if determinism is true and someone doesn't believe that, that there's a God, um, they have a darn good excuse. The example that I've given in your presence, Leighton, before is if I tell my, I don't have a five-year-old daughter anymore, but, but when I did, if I tell my five-year-old daughter to pick up her doll and take it to her bedroom and she doesn't do it, well, then she's got no excuse. She does not have a good excuse because that doll probably weighs a half a pound. And this is going to demonstrate my point precisely. So he's talking about his daughter picking up a doll that she is able to pick up, but she just doesn't want to, right? So what? that's a moral choice, right? It's not a, it's not a physical limitation. It's in the moral category. She doesn't want to. But if I tell my five-year-old daughter to pick up the couch with me laying on it and carry that to her bedroom, and she doesn't do it, she's got a darn good excuse. She couldn't do that even if she wanted to. So... What Calvinist have you ever read that has caused you to think that what we mean is that people are born, millions of people are born, really wanting to believe in God, but they just can't do it because their, their faith box is broken? Where have you gotten this concept from? And the only place it's come from is your false assumption. It literally wasn't possible for her to do any such thing. And they literally couldn't because they were determined not to. They ultimately couldn't because they were determined not to. But hypothetically, they could have, right? Well, here, here's a good example of... And that goes, again, just as, just as valid for your view. You can't do anything other than what you're going to do tomorrow. You can't do anything other than what God knows you'll do tomorrow. And yet you would still say, hypothetically, along the way, you could have done the other thing. Why? Because you're talking about a hypothetical means to have done so, not an ultimate could have done so. There's a difference there. A fallacy from Britain uh, as a Calvinist here. He says, there is no excuse. Excuses get us out of consequences. If God has it's not saved you, then you will not be saved. You have you don't escape the consequences. That's the point, <laughs> Brenton, is, okay, uh, suppose Braxton said to his daughter, pick me up, pick the couch up, carry me up the stairs. And when she can't do it, he gets up and beats her. Okay? Yeah, and that's an absurd misrepresentation of the position. Nobody is saying that the mean, nasty Calvinist God is commanding people to believe in him when they really want to believe in him but can't. Nobody is saying that God is commanding people to do things that they can't naturally, in terms of faculties, do, and then punishing them for not being able to, to do those things. What we're saying is that God is commanding people to do things that they don't want to do, and then punishing them on the basis of their not wanting to do what they could have done. And you can take this excuse argument all the way across the board from almost any angle, right? Just go back to Adam. God knew that if he placed the tree and gave the command to Adam, that Adam was going to fall, right? That's what he knew would happen if he took that action and put the tree there, right? And gave the command. So could Adam have done otherwise ultimately? The answer is no, right? So why isn't that an excuse for Adam, right? Adam wasn't in 
the ultimate position. Adam didn't have a quote-unquote say in God's choice to put the tree there, right? That's God's ultimate choice and ultimate action, right? So why doesn't Adam have the excuse that he was only doing precisely what God knew he would do if God put the tree there? How does Adam not have an excuse? That you're, you're confusing the consequences with the excuse. The excuse is actually a good excuse, a very good excuse for not actually her doing the thing that she's told to do. It's a really good excuse. And nobody will have the excuse when they stand before God, even if Calvinism and determinism is true. Nobody will have the excuse before God to say that, God, I really wanted to believe in you, but I couldn't because something was holding me back. Right? Nobody's going to have that excuse. You could try to move it over to the actual point and say, well, they would have the excuse that God determined that they would want or not want to accept him, and that's somehow an excuse. But if that's an excuse in Calvinism, that's just as valid of an excuse in your view. Because I can say, God, you created me knowing this is what I would do, and it wasn't up to me whether or not I existed, so it's your fault. Same concept. It's a correct excuse, in other words. It's not like my dog ate my homework when that really didn't happen. That's, that's, a, that's a false excuse. This is actual a real excuse, and it's valid. I can't, Daddy, I can't pick you up. You're, you're, that's beyond my capacity. Right. You can't pick you up even if you wanted to. As your child. I can't do that. That's a good excuse. And then, and then Braxton's saying, nope, I'm not going to let you have that excuse, even though it's valid, even though it's correct, even though you're right. It's a valid excuse in, in your analogy, which is falsely representing Calvinism. And I'm going to beat you now. That is intuitively, we all know that intuitively, Braxton is a bad father if he were to do something like that. Yeah. And God would be, I would argue, uh, a mean, nasty God if he were to do that, that thing as well, right? But he is not punishing people for not being able to do what they wanted to do, okay? That's, com that's never been what Calvinism has taught. We all intuitively know that's true. Even if, and even to, to lighten the load a little bit, even if I just told her to go stand in the corner as punishment, that would be unjust too. Or if I spanked her, that would be unjust. Or if I didn't right, let her have to be a beating. Right, it doesn't have to be a beating for it to be unjust. Yeah, any punishment for that would be unjust. And with, you know, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not challenging the truth of, of Romans chapter 1, verse 20. I'm upholding what I think is the truth of Romans 1, 20. I'm saying God says those people that don't believe in one maker God don't have a good excuse because they have the available evidence of, of general revelation all around them, the created world and all those kinds of things. So what I'm saying here is if that's true, that they don't have an excuse and the creation should evidence the maker God to them, then they can believe is what that, that, that seems to teach. And um, yeah. And again, I'll repeat it. I, as a Calvinist, believe that everybody has the natural faculties, the natural ability to believe. Everybody who's ever been born could have believed in God if they had wanted to. They just didn't want to because they hated him. Can I be any more clear? Let's amp it up a little bit. Let's say the president of the United States calls me to the White House lawn and says, rip that tree, that big, mighty oak tree out of the ground and throw it across the United States. You guys see the problem? Yeah. And I don't do it. And he says, you've got no excuse for not doing it. And I say, I can barely lift 50 pounds because I'm weak. Right. Even if you wanted to. Right. Notice his examples and the idea of excuse has, he's, he's not tying it to the disposition of the person and whether or not they want to do or obey the person giving the command. Um, and you want me to rip this oak tree out of the ground? I can't. It's not within my capacity to do that. What if the president commanded you to lift up a piece of paper that you obviously could lift up, but because you thought the president was as bad as Hitler and you hated him, that you wanted to disobey him and you refused to obey his command, right? Now we have an accurate representation of what's going on. You would say, I can't pick that paper up because of my hatred for that person, right? It's not that you can't pick up things, period. 
You can't obey that command of that person because you hate them, right? I've said before, um, I can pick up a piece of paper, but if I have arachnophobia, which I don't, but if I had arachnophobia, I might not be able to pick up a spider. It's not that I can't lift the spider up physically, right? Spiders don't weigh that much. But my extreme fear, my disposition of extreme fear towards the spider is going to prevent me from doing that. And I can come along, therefore, and say, no, I can't pick that spider up. Or I can't forgive that person whom I hate. I hate, I hate, I hate somebody for what they've done to me, and I cannot forgive them. What do I mean when I say that? It's not that I can't forgive, period. It's that I can't forgive that person because of my disposition towards them. I might say, I can't eat that. Can't eat that. Does that mean I can't put it in my mouth and chew? No. That means I, I probably think it's disgusting. And yet I can go so far as to say I can't eat it because I don't want to. Example after example after example. Well, you know what? Um, that's too bad for you because I told you to do it. And even if you couldn't do it, I'm still holding you responsible. And anyone okay. out here who challenges that, like, here, here's where I want to, like... It's just a bad... Ex- it's, it's, it's missing the, the point so badly. It's almost... It's, it's bad. Okay. I know you do this every every week, Layton, but for me, I've been... I just want to... I guess my question for these guys would be, what what Calvinist did you read or hear? Can you, like, give me a quote or a sound clip of a Calvinist that made you think that what we're saying is God commands people to do things that they can't do even if they wanted to? What made you think that Calvinists teach that there's millions of people who are going to be in hell who really wanted to believe in God but just couldn't? Where are you coming up with this garbage from? And the only thing I can say is it's just your false assumptions, your false conclusions, your stubborn false conclusions about our position. I've been out of the Calvinism game for a little bit, and I come back into it, and I look at this, and I think, it's not that I think that you're irrational, and I actually admire about my Calvinist brothers that they're taking the Bible so seriously. I, I, but, but I have to look at that and say, you got to at least give me what Piper's giving me here. At least Piper is giving me... Yeah, that seems right. That's that's the intuition. That seems to make sense. Now, I, I guarantee you that the examples you're giving about people not being able to do what they want to do um, is not what Piper would believe. It's just not what the Bible teaches. It just doesn't seem honest, in other words, for somebody to say, no, that's not really what we intuit. That's right, really not right. what we, you know, automatically. He, he at least is, is honest, intellectually honest enough to come out and say, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, we really do intuit that we do believe that. No, he doesn't believe that your misrepresentation of what you just put forth. He doesn't believe that. And see, that they, these guys think they're making an argument here, and it's a valid argument, and they think that, therefore, us Calvinists are just, that's that's what we actually believe, and we're just accepting it, and, and like, punching to mystery and all this, all this stuff. And I'm telling you, no, that is not an accurate representation of our position. Um, Britain is making another uh, stab at this. Uh, Braxton is, is not uh, his daughter's cre- creator. He doesn't set the rules for her. Either God makes us his image bearer, or he doesn't. If he doesn't, it isn't an excuse. So, in other words, he's appealing to the fact that that analogy doesn't work because you haven't created your daughter in the way that God creates us. Um, how would you respond to that? Now, before he responds, um, I think this is a, a good point that brings up sort of a side issue. And that is, in episode one, I pointed out, for example, that um, there's a difference between God and giving us commands and holding responsible and us holding each other responsible and giving each other commands. And he just laid out, this Calvinist in the chat pointed out that you don't have the right to do particular things. So if I were to walk up to you and I were to say, I command you right here and right now to love me, worship me, serve me, uh, and obey me, right? And all the way down the line, I give you all these commands. You would look at me like I was insane, right? You would look at me like I was insane. 
and this isn't about whether or not you could obey those commands. The point, I'm, I'm, I'm making a new point here. You would look at me as if I was insane because I don't have the right over you to do that in the first place. So why don't you look at God as just as insane when he does that very thing? He creates you, throws you down here on earth, and then gives you commands. He basically places you without asking you, right? He didn't ask you to, if you want to be created or exist. God creates you without your permission and places you into a position of, of commands and owing your, your obedience to him, right? Why isn't God insane for doing exactly what I'm insane for doing to you? And the only answer is that God is in, he, he has the right to do that as your creator. He has the right to set the rules. Well, he's attacking the analogy instead of the point of the analogy. The point of the analogy has to do with the nature of justice. Now, it is true that whoever the authority figure, the, the difference in authority figure does make a difference in some cases. I fail to see how this is one of the cases where who the authority figure is, because we're talking about, if I can't look at God and say, okay, he, God is talking to me about justice. God is talking to me about love. So I look at God and I say, he's telling me that he's loving, that he's ultimate justice. If I look at God and my sense of justice is completely the opposite of what he's doing, then it, it, it is senseless to even use justice as a term to describe it. You just say, God is God. Well, yeah, that, that depends, because a lot of people can falsely take their own idea of justice and try to fit God into that, rather than looking at God first and basing their idea of justice upon that, right? We have to be careful. Justice, whatever God does, well, God is God. Because the sense of what justice means to anyone is, is very clear. You see how he says, what justice means to anyone. What just means to anyone is just very clear, as if it's just universal thing, this intuition that we all have. But even if that were the case, you know, again, we point at the Bible. The objector in Romans 9 obviously thought that it was unjust for God to find fault with someone like Pharaoh for doing precisely what God raised Pharaoh up to do. And yet that's our prime example in this episode of God determining that someone do something and then punishing them for it. And, and this is... Um, uh to go against that justice. Well, also to put it in the realm of okay. things that we can't respond to, which is to say, well, because it's God, the rule, everything's di all the rules are different, and, and, you know, yeah. Well, there is a difference, and it's not enough time here to get into the, the details of it, but like I said, God has the right to give people commands and determine the punishment for those commands, um, and we don't have the right to do that in most cases to other people. Well, and that's what I, the way that I always point out the nitpicking of analogies is I just give, I just grant them that point. Okay, so let's pretend like Braxton has the ability to create senient beings. So let's just say for the sake of, so that's what's great about suppositional arguments. You can suppose anything. So let's suppose that Braxton now has the ability to create gr little girls. Okay. So he creates a little girl. Okay. Not the and best. He created her for, you know, I, I know it's, it's an analogy, so you can do whatever you want. Suppositional. So let's suppose he creates a little girl and then tells her to do something that she's incapable of doing and then punishes her for doing the same. The, the analogy works exactly the same. So in their case, the reason the analogy works exactly the same is because their misrepresentation hasn't changed, right? Um, commanding somebody to do something they can't do even if they wanted to. I, I don't know how many times I need to correct that. If he creates her as a sentient being with feelings that actually feels pain and then causes her pain for doing something that she absolutely has no control over, all of us intuitively know that's not a very just creator. And yet, even you believe that God creates people he knows will do particular things and then punishes them and inflicts pain on them for those things, right? Let's just talk about hell for a moment. Will God be inflicting pain upon the people in hell? Everybody has to say yes, right? And yet God knew, before he created any of the people that would end up there, that he knew exactly who he would be inflicting that pain on and why, right? And God could have not created those people. He could have created those people differently, but he chose to create those people in 
in such a way that they would end up in hell and be punished by him. I want you to explain to me the differences there. And God's, you said punishing someone for something they have ultimately no control over, even in your view, you don't have ultimate control over whether or not you exist. So it, it goes both ways. That, that's just wrong. And this goes back to the, 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 the point I think C.S. Lewis makes in that quote that we use, I use it in my book and I use it so often, that if our black is his white, our good is his bad, and our bad is his good, then we can say he is no, we know not what. That he, he might as well be an omnipotent fiend, an all-powerful demon, because, I mean, there, there's, no, there's no measure by which we can call him good and therefore worship him if, if his good is our bad and our bad is his good. Well, that's why you have to start with him. And, and you start with him and, and recognize that whatever he does is good. And then you base your idea of justice, quote-unquote, or what is fair on that. Okay? You don't start with your idea of justice, which you intuit, right? Which could be the result of sinful intuitions. And start judging God by that. That's not the right way to go about these things. All right, let, let, let me continue with this clip, just because we want to get through this entire portion of this clip. Let's listen. Uh, for, for trying to... I, I very much want to be biblical rather than systematic if I have to give up one. Right. In other words, if I... I but I didn't say logical. Right. <laughs> if you go there, I mean, I'm accused of being illogical. Right. And I reject that. I believe logic is God's creation. I mean, yep. it reflects God. Yep. He, he's, he, he doesn't commit the law of non-contradiction. He doesn't break that law. Uh, things can't be A and not A at the same time in the same way. God is a logical being. I don't think in saying that God governs the will and my will is accountable is illogical. It doesn't break any logical laws. Right. It doesn't break any logical laws at all. Um, I think that logic reflects the mind of God. Logic is the way that God thinks. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily, I don't think logic was created by God, but I do think that it it reflects God. And so, at, you know, when God creates a reality, creates a universe, um, that reality can't help but play by, so to speak, quote unquote, play by the laws of logic because it is the way God thinks. God could not have planned anything other than a logical reality, right? Um, and there's certainly nothing illogical at all about God controlling all things. In fact, I have argued from the start of episode one all the way through to now, strict logical application of the Bible and the verses that I bring up all the time. It, it is a logical application that God must be in control of all things. And I think I'll, I'll bring this up once again. People seem to think, you know, if God would just take a chill pill and just let things be, well, then free will could be true. But Calvinists insist that God must um, not allow free will to be true, as if it could be true. And what I'm, once again, trying to get across to people is that it's not as though if God was not controlling things, things would be happening differently. If God was not exerting power over things and controlling things, nothing would be happening at all. And this point is absolutely critical. This is one of those aha moments that really got me to start thinking about things differently. If God was not exerting power and control over you, you wouldn't be doing something else. You wouldn't be doing anything at all. You wouldn't even exist. You exist, therefore God controls you. You exist, therefore God is exerting power over you. Because of the verses that I've quoted that teach that your entire existence, every molecule and particle of, of your existence relies upon God from moment to moment to moment. Your heart beats because God causes it to beat. Your lungs take in air because God causes it to take in air. Your body supplies that oxygen through your blood because God's power causes those things to function the way that they function. Nothing that God has created is a power in and of itself. On and on and on, right? 
So once again, God's control over you is not a switch that can be flipped on and off, right? God's control over you is a necessary consequence of your very existence. You can't exist unless God controls you. And I think I can back that up scripturally. And once you really start to understand that, as much as you might not like it, once you start to really consider that fact, that it's not as though things could be happening differently, the only reason things are happening and are happening the way that they're happening is because the God who created and sustains all things is at work. It's just one of the biggest, most important things that you can consider and wrap your mind around. What do you, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I agree with him that explicit, there's no explicit contradiction there that to say that God determines everything and that we do what we want, but God determines what we want. So, so we, we make choices, but they're the choices that God determines. There's nothing explicitly contradictory there. Now, I do think that there's something implicitly contradictory in the nature of God, which is what we've just been uh, discussing so far. And again, after what I just said, you can't even think a thought, which leads up to a choice, unless God's power and control, necessary control, um, God is in control of his power, his own sustaining power, unless God's power causes that to happen, right? Again, again, it's not as though if God was not exerting power, things would be happening differently, and you'd be thinking different thoughts, and you'd be making different decisions. You wouldn't even exist. You wouldn't be doing or thinking or choosing anything at all unless God's power and control was at work. But I also want to point to the interesting fact that he, he, he intuits that the law of non-contradiction is true when it comes to the Scripture. Why intuit that? Why intuit the law of con- I mean, of course, I believe that, but I'm not, I'm not into ditching our, our intuitions, right? This is one of the most important metaphysical intuitions that we have, that A can't be A and at the same sense at the same time not A, right? Now, I, he's right. I have no, no disagreement there. I, I don't think I've ever said at all that there's no such thing as us having intuitions and that we can't have intuitions that are not true. Of course we can. Uh, the point here is that you can't find anything in the Bible that's going to contradict or or argue against your intuition that A can be A and not A at the same time, right? The Bible is not going to refute that. And yet, when we come to the topic of free will, this is where the argument lies. I would argue that there are verses that go against that intuition. Right, and, and that's exactly the point, is that when we, when we talk about the logical contradiction here, and, and a lot of Calvinists hold to just the logical contradiction. Piper is at least, this is one of the reasons Jerry Walls and other anti-Calvinist or other non-Calvinist who've spoken out against Calvinism have said that they really appreciate John Piper because John Piper doesn't commit the law of contradiction, non-contradiction, um, because he just comes right out and says, you don't have free will, uh, which we're about to hear in this, in this next clip. Matter of fact, let me... Yeah, and I, and I do the same thing. I've encouraged everybody throughout these episodes to just deny free will from the start, right? Properly define it as freedom from God, the only reference point that matters, the only reference point that anybody cares about, right? You know, people on the other side of the planet, if I'm the reference point for free will, they are completely free from me. So they've got all, all sorts of free will if I'm the reference point, right? But nobody really cares, right? What we care about is, is the God of the universe, who created you and sustains you. Are, are you free from him when you make choices? And my answer is no, you are never free from him, okay? Let me let you listen. So one way, one way I've tried to put this, um, like when I'm talking to our students here at Bethlehem, is um, a major task in theology is putting the mystery in the right place. Yeah, that's good. Um, and so like you said, there's certain things, so doctrine of the Trinity, say, how is God three in one, how? How is God three in one? That he's three in one seems plain from text, how? We got all kinds of terms that we use to try to say the how, but there should be mystery there. How, how is Christ God and man? That's a mystery, hypostatic union. And then here, the intersection of 
creator and creature and how creator governs creature in a way that preserves creaturely integrity and responsibility. Those are the places where mysteries to be expected and not dismissed. Or if I can't explain how, then I don't affirm either side. But we should expect mystery in those places, right? Right. And, and getting it in the right place on this particular issue is challenging because people want to locate the mystery between, okay, I have free will and God is sovereign and I can't figure it out. And I say, that's not where the mystery lies. You don't have free will. Yeah, I uh, couldn't have said it better myself. I, I don't really think there's much of a mystery um, when it comes to this particular issue. And I've made that clear um, with my episodes like uh, Human Responsibility, properly understood. Um, there's, uh, there, there are plenty of mysteries, okay? The, the thing about mysteries is there's nothing that we know about a particular mystery that is contradictory, right? If, if there's a contradiction in something that you know, it can't be true period. And so if there is a contradiction, you don't just get to claim mystery as an excuse to continue believing your contradiction, right? And once again, this whole responsibility point, how can God determine what you do and hold you responsible? That is only a contradiction if you assume that in order to be responsible in the first place, you must be free from God, right? But if that false premise, which I, I consider it a false premise, if that premise can be demonstrated to be false, and taken out of the picture, there's no longer a contradiction, right? And I would argue, therefore, no longer a mystery. And so we just have to be very careful on both sides when we start throwing mystery around, right? In my opinion, the only genuine mysteries that should ever be appealed to are actually topics that Christians are not even debating in the first place, okay? Leighton Flowers loves to point to the fact that God cre somehow created out of nothing. We just don't know how it works. Well, that's true, and that's great. But nobody's arguing against that point. And there's nothing in Scripture that causes us to debate that issue. We all just agree, right, that we might understand how, but we know that he did create out of, out of nothing. And, well, I would say it's not a contradiction because something coming from literally nothing is what the atheists believe. That is illogical. That is contradictory. But we believe that everything came from God and his power, right? So there's a bit of a mystery of how, how do we explain that away from the idea of pantheism, that God is what he's created. God is most certainly not what he created. But my, my whole point is here, we all appeal to that mystery. It's a mystery because nothing in the Bible causes us to debate it in the first place. Same thing goes for the Trinity, right? I know people debate the Trinity, but amongst Trinitarians, there's no argument, right? And we actually go through a lot of effort, as the guy asking John Pepper questions here pointed out, we create various terms like person and being to avoid contradictions, right? And to try to explain what's going on as best we can. But when it comes to particular topics where the Bible is clear enough to have us arguing about them in the first place, you can't let the other side appeal to mystery to avoid their own contradictions, right? So Leighton Flowers loves to point out, or attempt to point out, I should say, attempt to point out, well, the Bible teaches that God knows all things, but we don't. It, the Bible doesn't tell us how God knows all things, right? So we just get to sort of hide in this pool of mystery on the free will side and get out of the, the what I would say are the logical problems of the foreknowledge of God that, that are presented to the free will position by the foreknowledge of God. But I disagree. I think the Bible does explain how God knows what he knows with verses like Psalm 139.16, right? God formed our days for us and wrote them in his book when as yet there was none. How does God know our days? Because he, as the divine author, formed our days and wrote them. It's, po it's poetic language, but it's getting a very clear point across. God knows what he knows about you. God knows all of your days because he, as your creator, formed them for you, right? 
So that's how God knows what he knows about you. And I think there's, you could find other verses that go along these same lines, that the Calvinist position that God knows what he knows because he determined it is biblically demonstrable. And upon that basis, I would say, I refuse to allow the other side to just claim mystery and, and move on, right? And here's the other thing. If you are going to insist that you just get to appeal to mystery on particular things that the other side is arguing against you on, then you need to remember that that can go both ways, right? Why can't I then, as a Calvinist, if you accept if you accept the appeal to mystery from your side, why can't I just appeal to mystery on every everything you question Calvinism about? When you say God is determining what I do and holding me responsible, how does that work? Instead of giving the answers I've given, if I just said it's a mystery, get over it, again, that doesn't do us any good, right? And And on any question you level against me, I can just say, oh, don't worry about it. We don't know how God does it. We just know that God does it, and it's a mystery, so you need to just let it go. But the point is that if you have grounds and reasons to be arguing against me or me against you, then the appeal to mystery should never be accepted. Mystery should only be accepted on things that we agree on and are not arguing about and things that the Bible does not actually present any sort of argument against, right? Again, we can understand there are mysteries, and yet nothing about our understanding of those mysteries, what little we might understand, is ever going to be contradictory. That was a very long-winded way to just say, you know, let's not accept the appeal to mystery excuse on things that can be logically demonstrated as false. You don't have free will. Okay, and that's what I wanted to hear people, people to hear him specifically say. And I want more people to hear that as well, on both sides. You do not have libertarian free will. You do not have... You are not the decisive cause of your choices. The ultimate decisive cause. Um, and, and that's how, he, in other words, he affirms determinism. That's what he means by sovereignty. He affirms determinism is true. Sovereignty, he calls it. And it can't, be, it can't be any other way. As I've already said, God's metaphysical relationship to what he has created is one of constant reliance upon him and his sustaining power. In order for you to be doing anything, God must be causing you to do it, ultimately and metaphysically, right? Because you are not an ultimate power in and of yourself. You are not self-sustained. You are not self-powered. You are not self-determined. But you don't have free will. Some Calvinists want to have their cake and eat it too on this point. They want to try to maintain, yes, we have real free will. Even some of them will even come right out and say libertarian type of free will. Yeah. Greg Kokel and other... Unfortunately, that's the, and that is a blight upon the power of the Calvinistic position as it tries to move forward and argue against these types of things. I can't stand... Um, when weak-spined Calvinists try to claim free will and God controls it somehow and it's just a mystery and it's really theological, it's theological laziness, right? And I can't stand it. Self-professing Calvinists, we do have libertarian free will, but yet determinism is true. Sovereignty under Calvinism is true. And that's just a mystery we cannot comprehend. And what Piper is pointing out, the same thing that he, he writes an article against J.I. Packer for this, by the way. Go back and read it. It's back in the 70s that he wrote it. He writes a, a, an article against J.I. Packer for this very thing. Good for him. Because a lot of Calvinists are out there going, no, we have libertarian free will, but yet God is deterministically sovereign. And that's just the mystery that we have. And what Piper has recognized that many Calvinists have not is that is committing the law of non-contradiction. John MacArthur does this too. Yes. When he says these right. So saying that God is not in control of your choices, that you are ultimately in control of your choices, but God also is in control of all things, is a logical contradiction. Leighton Flowers is right to point it out, and shame on Calvinists who try to put that garbage forward. So, good job for Piper for standing strong and, and telling it like it is. We don't have free will. These friends just get along. We, the brothers don't need to reconcile their, their friends. 
and he, and he and he promotes the concept of libertarian free will and then he then he promotes the concept of determinism i.e sovereignty of god and calvinism and he says these things are just mysterious and we can't get them and what at least john piper recognizes is those two things are contradictory and therefore you cannot hold those two things and be a christian without committing the law of non-contradiction i'm glad he recognizes that and i want to say this right here so in case things are said in the future from late in the side you that goes both ways right that goes both ways. You don't therefore get to say, as I've already pointed out, that God's power is upholding every molecule or particle that he's ever created, and yet some of those particles, such as you and whatever part of you makes up your will, can can be free from, from God. You don't get to say God upholds your existence and upholds your will, and at the same time, you are somehow free from him when you make choices. That is also a contradiction a blatant contradiction, right? So if you expect Calvinists, like me, consistent Calvinists, to abandon free will and be logically consistent with our full-blown control of God determinism, then we expect you to do the same thing from your end and affirm full-blown free will, self-determinism of man, self-sustained, God created man, self-sustained, ultimate power, you're an ultimate power in this universe, you're metaphysically disconnected from God, you do, you do not rely upon his sustaining power, on and on and on, you might as well, as James White rightly says, become an open theist. Right? You're going to demand consistency from me. I'm demanding consistency from you. And the end, the end road for the free will consistent position is open theism. Right? Too much to get into here, but I'm just asking for Leighton to practice what he preaches. Right? Because it's my opinion that Leighton, trying to hold on to free will of man and somehow say that God is upholding your existence at all times... He's upholding your existence, but he's not in control of your existence, somehow, is a contradiction. And, again, just asking for consistency from his side as well. Yeah, I, I Packer calls it an antinomy and says, right. don't worry about it. <laughs> don't think too much about it. But Piper's consistent on that. He had, the, what I saw throughout this video, I watched three-fourths of this video in prep, you know, since you asked me to come on, and um, it seems like his professor, the guy that's interviewing him, seems to uh seems to be trying to say well, well wait a minute you know like the j.i packer thing like you said but and, and throughout the rest of the video he'll continually say yeah but we don't know how this happens we know that is true but we don't know how piper is not the least bit confused about how he thinks this happens how he thinks this happens is that god determines everything and then holds you responsible for what god determined that's why he says that it disturbed him so much when he came to the conclusion that it was true which is what baffles me when we have other videos of piper appealing to mystery as to why adam and eve sinned or appealing to mystery as to why Satan fell. Uh Again, my best guess on that is that they're just pointing out they don't know what in creation exactly caused that to happen, but I don't think that they're denying their claim that God ultimately caused it to happen. Again, I, I don't think that that's really a contradiction. I highly doubt that that's their point when they say that. Well, I, I don't, I mean, here I am saying I don't know why, why uh, Satan fell. I know why Adam fell, right? You can point to Eve, and then Eve can point to Satan. But when you hit Satan, there's there's a, there's a mystery there of what in creation, right? What what on the storyline level caused Satan to have that prideful, sinful thought? Don't know. There's a mystery, but there's it's not a contradiction, and I'm not claiming that God was not at any point in control of what was going on, um, and, and and ultimately kind of guessing as to 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 why he might have fallen when he's already told us exactly how and why. Because again. This goes back to the last episode. Difference between, there's two answers to why things are happening. Why did Satan fall? 
God caused it and determined it, ultimately, yes. But how did God cause it? And how did God bring it about on the storyline level? That question needs to be answered on the storyline level, and we lack the information, storyline level information, to answer that question. So that is where the only quote-unquote mystery is going to lie. God determines the person to do so for his own self-glorification. Why, why are you appealing to mystery on those two choices and not to all choices? And this is what we're... And I don't think that Piper is. I think Piper would affirm what you just said. God determined all, all things, including the fall of Satan. But it's a storyline level question. What on the storyline level caused Satan to fall? That's where the mystery is. We're trying to say, if you're going to appeal to mystery on Adam and Eve's choice, or the mystery of the choice of Satan to fall, then why not appeal to that? Let that be the point where you place the mystery, as he was he was putting it, to to the the, the, the mystery of what a libertarian free choice is composed of and, and how it works, and just say, we don't know exactly how a creature makes a libertarian free choice, but we believe that he does, and that is beyond full comprehension. Because that's not the mystery we're, we're appealing to. Right, uh, covered this heavily in in our video on "Did you believe because you were better?" Uh, his article in response to that particular argument of Calvinism, he tries to put forth this idea that since we appealed to a mystery on what caused Satan to fall, therefore we're admitting free will mystery or libertarian free will. No, just because I don't know what caused Satan to fall doesn't mean I'm denying that something did cause Satan to fall. Right. So again, we're not appealing to a free will mystery. And it's not an argument that you can then swing over and say, therefore, every free will choice is somehow ma this magical free will. Again, I, even myself, I do things sometimes and I don't know why. When I say I don't know why I did something, am I appealing to free will when I, when I say that? No. I mean, that, you got to stop and realize that's not a very good argument for free will, right? If you're going to say that things that you're, you're you're doing things and choosing things for no reason at all and you can't point to a reason then that's that's called randomness right that's called indeterminism that's not even self-determinism so you just got to be real careful when you start going down that road of well free will is just this this mystery that we don't need to give any reason why things are happening right it just i don't understand but we don't believe that god is the one who determines that choice we believe that that choice is determined by the actor the the, the chooser the determiner him we even determinists believe that our choices are determined by us. If you're going to talk about A causes B causes C on the storyline level, you're going to talk about direct and indirect causes on the storyline level, we are the direct cause of our choice, right? We are the cause of our choice, but something proceeds and causes our, our causing our choice, right? Again, you did what you did. Why'd you do it? Because you wanted to. Why'd you want to? You got to insert a reason there. You have to have a determinative reason. You can't just circle back and bounce back and forth in the free will bubble and say, I wanted to choose, to wanted to choose, to wanted to choose, and never get anywhere, and then just to throw your hands up and appeal to mystery. That is not how reality works. That's not making sense out of reality. We all, I would argue, intuitively know that you don't choose to want to choose to want to choose to want to choose to want to choose, to want to choose infinitely regressing, right? Himself, and we leave the mystery there. We just stop right there. We say, full stop. Braxton is responsible for Braxton's choices. Period. End of discussion. Stop. No, no, no other. No other thing needs to be said about that. Um, and instead of speculating beyond that to say, well, the reason that Braxton chose choice A instead of choice B is because God, in His sovereign and unchangeable will, predetermined for Braxton's desire to be such that he would only choose A instead of B because of particular storyline level reasons. That 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 steps beyond that that concept of mystery and puts the mystery into a, a context where now Braxton's it removes the mystery. Actually, culpability is in question. It's it's not though. I mean, when people go to when we're when people are in court and they're they're looking for why did somebody do something? They're looking for motives and reasons and well that person murdered that person because they hated them, right? So there was a determinative reason, a disposition involved 
we look for determinism all the time in, in the reasons behind why we do things. We never just say, well, I murdered that person because I did. I just did it because I did it. I don't know why, and it's a mystery. You, you never hear that, right? And you never have given the answer that Leighton just gave for why people do things. You've never given that answer when you were asked why you did something, right? Ever. Braxton's culpability or responsibility is in question as to whether Braxton's really responsible for his choice of, of A and, and rather, rather than B, which is why we have this quandary that we talk about regularly on our program is this concept and idea of how in the world do those who end up in hell who are ultimately there because God created them for hell, God did not really want them. That's true in your view as well. Man up and admit it and answer it. God did not really desire for their salvation and that, that God um, did not ever really um, give them an opportunity to, to believe and to be saved. Not that he owes anybody that opportunity, but what certainly seems to be revealed in Christ is that God desires the salvation of all, that he lays down his life for all of his enemies, that he's self-sacrificially loving towards his enemies. Again, I too much to go into here, deserves its own episode. I would not believe that God actually desires the salvation of all. This particular claim, um, again, very lazy exegesis of just, well, it says all, and God is not willing that any perish, and you know all these mainline proof texts we're used to dealing with. Instead of getting into those, I have just never understood how you can actually look out in the world and think that God actually desires that everybody be saved. Millions and billions and billions of people have lived and died throughout history without ever coming close to hearing the gospel, right? How can you possibly say God desired their salvation? Where was his effort? Where was his effort? Millions and billions of Chinese, for example, lived and died, never heard the gospel, didn't even come close. And yet, if you're going to sit there and say that God desired that all those people be saved, couldn't he have sent each person like their own personal angel? Wouldn't God's efforts be more apparent if he actually desired that, that every single individual person who's ever lived be saved? And you look out in the world today and you see all sorts of nations who are not being exposed to the gospel. How can you possibly argue that God wants everybody to be saved? And, and even if you can get somehow get out of that, you're still forced at, at this constant point I've pointed out that God is creating people he knows will never accept him. So how can God desire the salvation of somebody that he knows that he's going to create in a particular way that they'll never accept him? Right? They like to point to these, God is long-suffering and patient towards you. He's just begging you and begging you, and he really wants you to come. Why is God patient toward a person he knows is never going to accept him? Why is he long-suffering, quote-unquote, or waiting for, or begging, or pleading with somebody he knows will never accept him? Right Now, th again, this is a question that all Christians need to answer. I'm not just throwing this back at them. I think I've got answers for those questions because they're reality-based questions, right? But my whole point is here is you don't get to throw this ultimate point out without recognizing that you have to address it from your view as well. And therefore, the character of God is displayed, at least through Christ, as one whose glory is displayed in his sacrifice for his enemies, not his control over his enemies' choices and decisions. God can't help but control your choices and decisions because they can't even come to pass apart from his sustaining causative power to begin with. Now, I, I want to I conclude with this, uh, this point, um, if you don't mind, um, really defining what free will is from a provisionist perspective. Um, in other words, it, it's, it's one thing for us just to, quote-unquote, attack or criticize our Calvinistic friends. 
um, and they just say, well, Piper, at least he's putting out there a positive presentation of what he believes the Bible is saying about the character and nature of God and how it works. You guys um, are just criticizing him, but at least he's he's taking a stance. Um, now, obviously, anybody who watches the program knows that we take a stance, too. But for those that watching just this particular broadcast, since I have you here, um, can you give more of a positive presentation from a, 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 a indeterminist perspective as one who knows philosophy and theology? Um, how would we define what true free will looks like um, and, and, and defend it from our perspective? So this should be uh, interesting here. Yeah, so uh, libertarian freedom, as we understand it, what we call free will, libertarian freedom, is it, two things. One, the ability to have done other than whatever you ended up doing. Like You can't go back in time and do it again, but at the moment of decision, whatever you decide to do, you really could have done something else. You really could have done something else. But again, there's two senses in which that statement can be true. And unless you clarify what you mean, then what are we supposed to assume, right? I, I would insist that the logical end of what you said is for free will to be true free will, you would say that you could have ultimately done otherwise. And, and if that's the case, then the foreknowledge of God can't exist, right? If you can do other than what God knows you'll do, that is the ultimate level, that's the ultimate sense, then God could not know what, you, what you're going to do, because foreknowledge must be concrete, right? So the only real logical sense in which you could have quote-unquote done otherwise is once again the hypothetical sense. The means were there, right, to have done otherwise. If something about the situation had been different, such as your desire, if you had desired to do the other thing, you could have. There would have been nothing physically preventing you from doing it, so on and so forth. But you can't just say you could have done otherwise without being clear about what you mean. And why would you have done otherwise? You know, you want to talk about you could have done otherwise, but why would you have, right? And we've already pointed out that the only reason you would have is if something about the situation was different, right? So ultimately, again, if you, even if you were to rewind time, if it's the same situation, the exact same situation, then you're going to do the exact same thing because it's all connected. Reality is connected. Things happen for reasons. And the only way that you would have ultimately done something else is if something about the situation had resulted in you doing something else, right? And we pointed out in past episodes how if you're going to die on this hill of you being able to, in each and every instance, identical circumstances, nothing being different, if you could pause the universe when you're about to make a choice, copy the universe, right? And then press play. You can do one, you can choose one way in, in one universe and one way in the, in the other way in the other universe. And there's nothing different about those universes. Then you're not able to answer the why question of why you chose one instead of the other. That, that is, that's there. But at the very least, what libertarian freedom entails is that nothing external to you determines your actions. And I think that that is bogus, right? It is very easily demonstrable. We're going to talk about intuitions in this episode. I think we all intuitively know that our decisions are determined by our desires, what we want to do, most in particular situations, and those desires are made up and determined by all sorts of things that are and have been external to us. Past experience, right? Our current state of mind, and our current state of mind can be affected by all sorts of things. Are we sober or drunk or high or... Are we super angry at somebody right now? Are we getting really emotional? Maybe we're sad or we're crying. Current state of mind, right? The dispositions that you have towards other people, right? Of being loving or hating or jealous or, again, those dispositions in and of themselves are going to have, must have been determined by things external to you. 
such as those very people with whom you have those dispositions, right? So I think to just say that your choices are not determined by anything external to you is just a complete blatant denial of reality, right? And what is so funny about this claim of free will, right? This is one of the most ironic things I'm, I've ever come across in this whole debate. And that is you take what he just said. Free will is that your choices are not determined by things external to you. That's free will. And yet if you're going to ask somebody who believes in free will, if free will is true, why has there never been, apart from the, the God man, Jesus Christ, why has there never been a sinless human? If you have free will, the ability to do otherwise, ultimately, and your actions are not determined by things outside of you, why has there never been a sinless human? And yet every time I've ever asked the free will side why there's never been a sinless human, they will point out at the sinful world around that particular person with free will and say that, the, the, that we're born into a sinful world surrounded by sinful things, and that's why sinful influences, quote-unquote, that's why there's never been a sinless human. But wait a minute, that's a contradiction, right? If true free will is your choices are not determined by things outside of you, then how can you say the reason there's never been a, sinful, a sinless human is because of the sinful world around and outside of them, right? Completely inconsistent answer, right? Just a, just a minor note there. And we do, I think we do see this in the Bible very, very clearly. So um, if you look at uh, Cain and Abel, for example. Oh, and by the way, the very idea, as I pointed out earlier, the very nature of choice in a finite realm, the fact that we are reacting to situations presented to us by an outside source, um, by an outside source, it's so funny how the very nature of choice itself refutes what he just said. You are presented with options by outside sources, things outside of you, and you are now find yourself in a position where you are making a choice. So it wasn't up to you to be, ultimately, it wasn't up to you to be making the choice, right? You, you want to sit there and argue about the choice. I want to talk about why you're even making a choice in the first place. And you'll notice that that refutes, that reality that you're being presented with options by outside sources refutes his claim that your choices are just nothing more than your own internal acts, right? And again, you got to distinguish finite choice in a finite realm, which I would argue is only possible if determinism is true. Guys, you have A and B in front of you. The only reason you're going to choose one or the other is because you prefer one or the other. Your will must move from a state of indifference to preference. Where there is indifference, there's no choice. You have to prefer one option over the other in order for a choice to be made. You have to prefer one over the other. The question is, what moves your will to prefer one over the other? And you can't just say you moved yourself to prefer one over the other. Because anytime you've been asked why you did something in life, your, your answer was never, I did it because I did it. Your answer was, I, maybe I did it because I wanted to. And then when people ask why you wanted to, you gave deterministic reasons. It tastes better. It feels better. Uh, they made me angry. It didn't work last time. Whatever the answer is going to be, it's going to be a determinative reason. After uh, Cain's sacrifice is not accepted, but before he kills Abel, God speaks to Cain and he says, um, why are you wroth? If, if, you, if you do well, will not your... Well, will you not be accepted? In other words, God is communicating to Cain very clearly. Look, you can do better. You can give a better sacrifice than this. And if you do, you'll be accepted. Right. God is pointing out that the hypothetical means are, are there, right? Just as I could have bought any other soda other than Coke, 
That doesn't mean I ultimately could have in that particular situation with those particular circumstances in my current state of mind, what I was thinking about, why I went to the store, and, and it's all factored in, just because I ultimately couldn't have chosen anything other than Coke in that instance, doesn't mean that you can't look at those other options as hypothetical, right? And there's nothing preventing me from, or forcing me to choose Coke, or preventing me from choosing the others, in the hypothetical sense of faculties. So the same thing goes with God giving commands, or in this case saying, if you do well, right? Well, is God, so you've got two options there. Since Cain doesn't end up doing that, but it actually ends up murdering his brother. You've got two options there. Either God was just lying to Cain, um, by, by telling him he could have done otherwise, or since he doesn't explicitly say it, he's, he's being incredibly deceitful to Cain by implying to Cain that Cain could do better. And that's just absurd. Um, again, you're refusing to acknowledge that, that there's two ideas of ability to do otherwise, right? This is not just something that's invented by Calvinists. This is something that's actually a thing. And for you to say that if God is saying, if you do well, but he can't actually do well, that God's being deceitful, God is telling him if you do well already knowing that he won't. So how is he not in any Christian view being deceitful by your own logic, right? Anytime God ever commanded somebody to do something, he commanded, the, he commanded them at knowing whether or not they were going to obey or disobey the command from the beginning. Anytime God ever said, if you do this, I'll do that, God already knew whether or not you would do this and whether or not God would do that. So is God being deceitful? Right? This is just a basic question based on the, the omniscience of God. This is not like some sort of brilliant anti-Calvinist argument here. When he knows that Cain won't because Cain isn't determined to do better, because Cain has been determined by God to murder his brother. I think that free will is the best explanation of that passage, and free will, libertarian free will is the best explanation of multiple other Old Testament and New Testament texts that get discussed on this show all the time. So from a philosophical perspective, libertarian freedom is the ability to have done other than whatever you ended up doing, and at the very least that nothing external to you determines your actions. Um... Both of those things, number one, it's not clear what you mean by ability to do otherwise. If you're talking ultimate sense, your entire view of foreknowledge of God refutes your ultimate ability to do otherwise. It just refutes it. And so you're forced to recognize that it's not in the ultimate sense, it's in the hypothetical sense, and in which case you concede the debate to me, right? You lose that point. And then to say that your choices are not determined by things external to you is, once again, easily demonstrable in reality and in Scripture. But determinism says... I mean, what, when God hardened Pharaoh's heart, you can easily argue that he did so by means of Moses performing miracles, right? He did so by means of sending plagues. Things external to Pharaoh caused him to harden his heart against God, right? So your, your definition of free will so far has just been a face plant. ...says that uh, whatever you ended up doing was what you were determined to do. It's unchangeable. It couldn't have been otherwise. And on Calvinism, it's because of a chain of cause... It's because of a chain that ultimately leads back to God. Um, I was about to say because of a chain of cause and effect, but some Calvinists, again, like our brilliant colleague, Chris Day, will say, no, it's not really causal in that sense. It's more like an author writing a story. But either way, the principal point is that God determines it, and it couldn't have been otherwise. Right, and this is actually, this is a good opportunity to, put, to point something very important out. And that is that, in my experience, the vast majority of Calvinists seem to try to present this idea that God is the quote-unquote first cause, and then you know, he, therefore he is the indirect cause because he's the first cause that creates all things. He starts the dominoes falling, so to speak. So he can be considered the first cause and the indirect cause of everything that happens. I disagree with that particular um, outlook, right? I, I didn't, when I was a first, first a Calvinist, I argued very heavily that God is the indirect cause of evil because he's the 
creator. He's the first cause and he might take actions in time at various times, but he's not the direct cause because I had a very linear storyline level only view of God as most people do. But once you consider once again, God in the transcendent position, you need to recognize that the causation of God in terms of his sustainment of the universe is moment by moment by moment. So it underlies the storyline level, right? I, I always consider it I call it the vertical relationship of God to the universe. God is causing each and every step along the way. So when you look at that horizontal storyline, you can see A causing B causing C causing D. You can see that chain of causes and effects from start to finish as it unfolds. You can see, I guess you could say dominoes. But my point is that the dominoes are not powers in and of themselves, right? The only reason the dominoes exist and continue to exist is because God's power is at work in upholding their existence. And the only reason the dominoes are falling and having the interactions that they're having, the cause and effect relationships that they're having, is because God's power is causing them ultimately to have that relationship. Remember, God's power is what gives reality not just its existence, but its continued existence and the interactions and the relationships that it has as it unfolds. God's power is the ultimate power behind that. So I wouldn't merely say, this is a long-winded point which deserves its own episode, but I would not merely say that God is just the first cause and that he is the start of a chain of causes and effects, or as um, Braxton here said, that you can look at any particular point and trace it backwards to God. God is not merely the first cause. He is the ultimate underlying sustaining power cause behind all created powers and created causes and effects that we observe. Um, and, and so the, the, the thing that I point out when it comes to the philosophical question of free will and determinism, self-determination, is just to simply ask the question, could God, if he wanted to, just, just suppose, let's suppose we, we don't know which one's right, supposing we don't know Calvinism or non-Calvinism is right, whichever one. And here we go again. But let's just suppose if God wanted to create a world where libertarian free creatures exist, in other words, he wanted to create a world where creatures don't make choices that he himself determines. In other words, he wants them to be self-determining creatures, that they are autonomous from him and his determinations. If he wanted to do that, could he? And you guys should all know our answer as Calvinists by now. No, he could not have. And it's not because he's not powerful enough. It's because God can't do illogical things. It is logically impossible for God to metaphysically disconnect itself from you. If God stops exerting power over you and sustaining your existence, you cease to exist. You cannot even exist apart from God's power and therefore his control. So the question he's asking is just like asking, can God do any other illogical thing? Right? And he's probably about to say, I can't remember what he says, he's probably about to say something like, well, if you, if you say that he can't do that, you're just limiting God and blah, blah, blah. Guys, can God cause himself to cease to exist? The answer is no. The answer is not yes, but maybe he just... I mean, what if I were to say that, guess what? God could cause himself to cease to exist. But fortunately for us, he hasn't chosen to, done, to do so yet. But he could, because I don't want to deny that God can, can do things, right? Because I'd be limiting God. Guys, there, it's okay to positively limit God. It's perfectly okay. God cannot cause himself to cease to exist. Can't do it. God cannot create another God like himself. And I would ask why, right? Every Christian would say God can't create another God like himself. But what if I were to say he can? How dare you limit God and say he can't do something? I'm a good little Christian who says God can do anything. Or as Leighton words it here, is it possible 
right? Let's just put all this Calvinism and, and stuff aside. Is it possible for God to create another to create another God like himself? Is it possible for God to create another self-sustained thing? Another self-determined thing? Another self-powered thing that is not reliant upon his power but is self-reliant? Is it possible for God to create that? Is it just possible? Can you use your imagination to just con maybe consider the possibility of it? The answer is no, right? You, you don't even entertain the possibility of it. But for some reason, people don't see those same problems when we start talking about free will. We want to, because we want free will, right? We want, we want to have it. So we say, of course God can do that. How dare you limit God? And I always ask that question, could he? And I, in fact, I typed it on the side for Brenton, and I don't know if he saw it because I didn't see an answer to it. Um, and, and, and so I, I, that, that's always what I ask because there's one of two answers. Either yes, he could have done that, or no, he couldn't have done that. And if they say no, he couldn't have done that, then you seem to be undermining his omnipotence. And I've already explained in all my episodes almost why you're not undermining his omnipotence. In fact, the great irony here, as I point out in episode two, is the, the irony in accusing Calvinists of limiting God's power by saying God can't do something, namely create you with free will. When it's the free will side, as he just said, who is limiting God's scope of power, right? You can understand God's power in terms of degree and level or scope and extent. And the free will side blatantly and openly declares that they have limited God's extent of power and scope of power because they say that you can be autonomous and free from his power when you are making choices, free will choices. So how ironic is it that you're going to point the finger at Calvinism and say that if we say God cannot do illogical things, we're limiting God's power, and yet you, in the same breath almost, define free will as being free from God's controlling power. So who's really limiting God's power here? I am not limiting God's degree of power nor extent of power. I believe God is all-powerful because it is his power which creates and sustains all things, right? All things are under the power of God. That's why God's all-powerful, because not just the degree of his power, but the extent of his power. But you might not deny God's de degree of power. You might say he's just as all-powerful as he can be. Well, that's great. We all believe that. But what about God's extent of power? And the free will position most certainly limits God's extent of power. If you're going to claim that he is not exerting power over you and control over you when you make choices. Because apparently Apparently, God does not have the creative power and ability to create creatures he himself doesn't control. There's plenty of things God can't do, and it has nothing to do with his power and his ability, right? If, if you're going to say God cannot create other gods like himself, if you're going to say God cannot cause himself to cease to exist, are you saying he can't do that because he's not powerful enough? Or are you saying he can't do that precisely because he's God? You see the difference there? And based upon what they pointed out at the very beginning of the episode... That's true self-determinism means that you are timeless and spaceless and there's nothing outside of you moving you to do what you do? That that's true self-determinism? How can you possibly say that God could create somebody with that self-determinism? That's just like saying God can create another God like himself. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And both of us are going to say God can't do that. Which seems to be a very low view of God if you don't think he has the power to do that. He doesn't have the power to create autonomously free creatures, I guess. <laughs> it's just a, it's a low view of God. Actually, it's the highest possible view of God you can have. To say that God is God, he's the only one who can be self-sustained. He's the only one who can be self-determined and self-caused and self-sufficient and autonomous. 
a law unto himself is the literal definition of that word. It is the highest possible view of God you can have to say that God is the only one who can have that nature of existence. It is the highest possible view of God you can have to say that his power is over all things. Right? You're going to say there's even one particle of existence out there that is not under the power of God, even for one moment? You're the one limiting the, the extent and power of God, not me. And, and very few Calvinists want to come right out and deny God's omnipotence like that. Um, it's just one of the weakest arguments. It's, it's so easily picked apart, right? Okay, well, here's Britton's answer. He says he doesn't see how. Okay, so because of your finite ability, inability to see how he does it, therefore you assume he can't, is what it sounds like to me. I don't well, know how he creates the thing from nothing. I, I've explained why he can't. It's all based on logic, and it's, it's, it's very clear. Yeah, and I would say um, creatures are dependent in the sense that they are contingent. They're not necessary beings. God's necessary. They're contingent on God for their existence. Then free will can't exist by your own definitions you've given. I mean, this is the point, guys. How can you hold to both? How can you say, well, my choices are not caused by things external to me, and yet then try to sound like a good little Christian and say that God causes you to continue to exist? That God's power, which is you know external to you in terms of existence, is causing you to continue to exist moment by moment, even when you're making choices. They won't exist if there's not a God to create and sustain them. But that's a different question from whether they have libertarian freedom. How is it a different question? It's a directly related topic. Right, and, and, that's, and that's the big point. Is that and this is my point, guys, is they, they want to mention and bring up the whole you rely on God part, and yet at the same time deny that God is in control of you when you rely on him. It, it, it's just like total contradiction, and they just want to sweep it under the rug. That sometimes when, when Calvinists um, talk about, well, you believe man is autonomous, and then they'll start talking about your next breath is at his mercy and all these things, as if our existence and our continued ability to live is not dependent upon his grace or mercy. That's not what we're talking about. Um, my, my ability ability to breathe is dependent upon God giving me that ability to breathe, but I'm still responsible for whether I use that breath to curse or to praise him. Now, and, and see, that's, that's once again moving yourself autonomously off to the side. God is not just giving you the ability uh, to breathe. His power is causing it, right? Th this is the fundamental worldview difference here, guys. And I've argued with people before on this whole God sustains you thing. And I've actually gotten some of them to admit that God basically gives you power. He, like, hands it to you. Like, here you go. Here's some sustaining power. Now take, your, take this power and do what you will with it, with your free will. That they actually, free will actually believes, the free will position, in some instances I've gotten them to admit, that you actually take the sustaining power of God and you wield it. Right? God is no longer in control of his own power. You're taking his power and wielding it. That's a scary, scary, scary position, guys. That you're going to take the power of God and with your almighty free will, do what you will with it. That is, that is not what Hebrews 1.3 means when it says God upholds your existence. That's not what Acts 17.28 means when it says you live and move and have your being in God. That's not what's being said there. The, the whole point, even that, that very chapter of Acts, he is the one who gives man life and breath and everything else. He doesn't just hand it to you and say, here you go, good luck. Everything about you is dependent upon the causative, sustaining power of God. In the same way, my ability to make choices is dependent upon him granting me the ability to live and make choices, but yet I'm still responsible for the choice I make. So we're not talking about the, the in, being independent from 
God in, as it involves our, our existence, our ability to breathe and act and choose. We're talking about our ability to make choices, moral choices. And you'll never, you'll never square what, what you just said, right? You want to take your reliance upon God's sustaining power and, and somehow say it's a different category and separate it away from the power that is behind, the ultimate power behind you doing anything, including making choices, right? God is the one whose power is behind all things, including your making choices. And if you say that it's not, then you are somehow the ultimate power behind it, right? And I, I just want a more clarification, because here they are trying to say, okay, yeah, God uphold your existence, but then they're putting forth a worldview which logically necessitates that you be self-sustained and self-sufficient, right? In order for God, once again, to not be in control of a particle of your existence, he would not be exerting power over that particle of existence. It would be self-sustained. That are independent in at least some sense from God's determination. At least in some sense. Hear that? In some sense. What are you talking about? You're never going to hear an explanation of that sense. You're just going to hear they want to have the best of both worlds. They want to have God upholding your existence at all times. And yet, in some sense, you are free from him and his power. They'll, they'll never be able to explain it logically. In other words, he's not the decisive cause of what I will choose to do with regard to moral evil. Um, and therefore, if God can't do that, which is what it seems like Calvinists are arguing, I know um, uh, James White has argued that it would be like God creating a rock so big that he couldn't move it. Um, and I've, I've pointed back and said, well, no, it's actually more like God creating a rock he chooses not to move. And God can choose not to move a rock if he, does, if he wants to. Um, and God can choose not to move a rock if he wants to. Uh, it's funny that uh, in past episode I mentioned the idea of God moving a rock or lifting a rock. Again, this demonstrates the difference between the worldview as a whole, the way people look at God's relationship to what he's created. When you ask, can God lift a rock? What do you mean by that? You see, most people assume, well, the rock weighs, you know, X amount, 100 pounds, and God's powerful enough to lift 100 pounds, so of course God can lift a rock. But what you're not realizing is the entire reason that, that the rock has its existence and weighs 100 pounds in the first place is because God's power gives it its mass, and God's power is at work in gravity. God's power is what is causing it to weigh 100 pounds in the first place. So when God goes, if he were, to lift a rock, right, it's not that he's going to be exerting power over against another power. He's not going to be fighting against some other power that is self-sustained that he that he has let go of. It's not, once again, it's not a switch that's flipped on and off. It's not, well, God is not exerting power over that rock right now, but if he goes to lift it, then he would be. No, God's power has been at work from the very start, right? The rock being what it is in combination with gravity and having weight, all of, God's power is behind all of that, right? So, once again, when God is going to, if God's going to lift up a rock, then he's not going to be exerting power where he otherwise wasn't. If God's going to lift up a rock, he's just going to er exert his power differently than he normally does. He's not going to be fighting against the law of gravity by lifting a rock. He's going to be, at least for a time, causing the law of gravity to function differently. Right? This, this is the whole point, is properly understanding God's metaphysical relationship to what he's created. And again... There's a difference between what I just explained and if God were to enter creation, for example, as the man Jesus Christ and go lift up a rock, well, then the man Jesus Christ would be exerting power to lift it up. That's not my point. My point was understanding God in the transcendent position, which is the very discussion that we're having when we're talking about free will. 
Um, and so he can create an agent that he doesn't himself control if he wants to. And it, and it seems to me very... That's as logical as saying God can limit his presence if he wants to, that God can stop exerting power over you if he wants to, that God can choose to not know certain things if he wants to, limit his knowledge if he wants to. God cannot do illogical things. It's a low view of God to say that God could not create free moral creatures if he wanted to. And it's not a low view of God. It's the highest possible view of God you can have. The lower view is saying that there can be other self-determining things in existence, other autonomous things in existence. That's the lower view of God. It seems higher to you because you get to have your free will, which is what you want, right? But it's actually the lower view, the more man-centered, less God-centered view. And a lot of Calvinists aren't willing to come right out and deny God's omnipotence like that, which is what it ultimately seems that they're doing. It's not denying his omnipotence. It is upholding it. God must be exerting power over all things because he is the creator and sustainer of those things. And for you to say that something can be free from that power at any time is you're the one limiting the power of God. Um, and, and ironically, they're getting really mad at the dynamic folks, the open theist folks, because they're denying his omniscience when at the same time they seem to be denying his omnipotence. And so I, I say, let's just not do either one uh, and appeal to the mystery of libertarian free will if we're going to appeal to a mystery at all. I mean, it well, yeah, seems like a better option. It, I think that a Calvinist, you brought up the very point, you know, from James White. If it were a logical contradiction, omnipotence has never said throughout the history of the church that God can do things that are logically contradictory, like make a square circle. Oh, see, and at least Braxton thinks about these logical things, and he points that out. The problem is what Leighton just put forth is the, the free will as a concept necessitates that very logical contradiction, that God is going to not be in control of something that requires his very control to exist. Right, that's, that's not a part of omnipotence. If it were true that libertarian freedom implies um, uh, a logical contradiction, then, then okay, you can still have omnipotence and say that God couldn't make someone this libertarianly free. And I've done my best to point that out. Not as, not as well here, but in, in other more primary episodes, like episode one and episode two. However, then what you have to face is God could... The very creation of the universe, as we said at the top of this show, requires that at least God have libertarian freedom. Of course God has libertarian freedom. What does that have to do with you? And as we said then as well, if God has libertarian freedom, then in principle libertarian freedom is not contradictory. For God, as an eternal being, right, as an uncreated, self-sustained thing, it's not contradictory for that nature and state of existence. And so there's no reason God can't give it to human beings. Oh my goodness. And so God can give you properties of eternality. That's just, I, 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 I'm pretty sure Braxton's a Molinist, and I respect Molinists because they do a lot of work against atheists, and, and I respect them a lot for, for what they do and what they say, but that is just one of the worst arguments I've ever, ever, ever come across, that God has free will, therefore I can too. That's just so, so bad. And so I think that's going to bring us to the end of this particular episode, guys. Again, sorry for going so long, but I think you can see that we played almost from start to finish, and you can see how there was a lot of really important stuff in that episode that needed to be responded to. We hope that you've enjoyed it and find it beneficial. I just want to make one final point, and don't panic, this is 30 seconds. We've spent most of our time in this episode, you know, the burden of proofs on Calvinists to disprove the intuition of free will. Well, we've done so mostly biblically and a little bit, I would, I would argue scientifically, quote-unquote, with the idea of causes and effects. And I would argue that with this being the case, um, I mentioned the idea of the earth being flat. Well, science disproves that, right? I mentioned the idea of luck, right? Well, science disproves that with the idea of cause and effect. And you don't need to be a physics major or a chemistry major to be able to consider the simple concept of cause and effect. And once again, 
Play this game with yourself as you go through life and make choices. Ask the why question. Why, 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 why? Why did I think it? Why did I do it? Why did I feel it? Why did things occur the way that they occurred? And when you ask that simple question, you're going to find that everything happens for a reason, right? Determinism is true. It is the reality that God has created, the reality that God causes to function the way that it functions. And so at the end of the day here, guys, the intuition of free will is disproved by both scripture and logic and all of reality, I would argue. Free will has everything going against it. And if it hasn't already been done, you know, again, I'm not a physics major or a chemistry major. If it hasn't already been done, the day is coming very soon when it will be very easily scientifically provable that free will is, once again, an illusion. Just like magic has been an illusion throughout history, just like luck has been an illusion throughout history, free will will be one of the major illusions that humanity has been under for most of their history. Right? I can see that day coming. Um, Calvinists are just already there. Right? We've, we've beat everybody there because we are, once again, also grounded in Scripture, which has been saying it from day one, that, that God is in control of all things. So we'll end it here. We'll we'll mention a few things here. If you enjoy this episode, please spread it around. Consistent Calvinism podcast can be found on all your favorite podcasting apps. You can find Consistent Calvinism on YouTube. Subscribe there. Please leave me comments. Send me messages. Let me know what you think, even if it's bad bad comments. I want to hear everything. Um, you can also follow the Twitter at the letter C Calvinism at C Calvinism for uh, updates and discussions there as well. Um, not quite sure what we're going to do for the next episode. It'll probably involve more of Leighton Flowers. I think you guys are getting used to this, but I think a lot of people, like like I said, all the comments I've received so far have been very positive that, that responses to Leighton need to be made, and we, people want to see more of them. So that's probably what we'll do more of on the next episode. So you guys take it easy. See you next time, and remember to stay consistent, my friends.